Hey, Deserving Listeners, today's episode is about the psychology of Marlon Brando. Up until recently, I didn't really think much about Marlon Brando. I didn't know much about him. I remembered him from The Godfather and Apocalypse Now and Superman as Superman's father. And I remember hearing that he was really difficult to work with, and I remember hearing that he was sort of insane and sort of crazy, but I had no idea how fascinating his life was. And I had no idea how fascinating his psychology was. Well, that's what I want to talk about today. I want to see if we can understand Brando and why he was the way that he was. And to help me talk about that, I asked Carrie Burbank to join me on this episode. I was listening to the TBTL podcast, the Too Beautiful to Live podcast, and I heard that Carrie Burbank was really into Marlon Brando. So I messenger message messenged, messenged you on Facebook, <laughs> and I asked you to come. I asked Carrie to come on the podcast so she could offer her insights into his life and his personality. Welcome to the podcast, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me. Is there anything you want to introduce about yourself before we get going? Other than I have no official legitimate credentials uh, to warrant being on this show, um, I, it's not going to stop me from giving my very passionate opinions about Marlon Brando. So today we're going to talk about his work as an actor. We're going to talk about his childhood. And I'll propose here and there a tentative analysis of his personality and uh, why he was the way that he was. Because he had some interesting behaviors in his life. So first, let's talk about Marlon Brando as an actor, because for those of you that don't know his, his, his uh, influence on American society and, and film, I think you really should know, because I didn't know this until I did a deep dive on him. Carrie. Yes. Let me ask you a specific question. Do you think, many people think he's one of the best actors that ever lived. Do you think he's one of the best actors that ever lived? I do. Why do you think that? Well, I will say, I, I wasn't actually very aware of Marlon Brando myself up until about three years ago. I was home alone. Luke was, my husband was traveling and I was in the mood to watch a, a movie. So I went on demand and nothing really appealed to me. So I, I went to, I think the old, the classic movie collections or something and happened to see Streetcar Named Desire and thought, well, I've never seen this movie. I've heard it talked about a lot. I should just check it out. And I was absolutely blown away. Like I was mesmerized by this in black and white and you know terrible lighting and all this stuff it was just the most captivating performance I've ever seen in my life and so then I became very curious about who this who this guy was and the more I found out about him the more fascinating the more intriguing he became not just as an actor but who he is as a human being which of course translates into his acting right but in my opinion I've never seen anyone that's you know, grabbed my attention and kept, I mean, he could read a grocery list and I would just be sitting there dumbfounded and, you know, captivated. Yeah. What was it about his performance? Is he mesmerizing? What What did you like about him? Because I could say, because I recently did a deep dive and yeah. watched a lot of these movies myself and have a few things to say to you, but what was it about his performance that really got you? Well, I'm going to state the obvious here and say first, he's, he's quite easy on the eyes. Mm -hmm. um, so there was just, I wasn't aware of what how good looking of a guy he was when he was younger. And um, I don't even know if I can fully articulate what it is other than to say 
perhaps it's just because he he is so authentic and I don't think there's a single, you know, bat of his eye that's not being utterly in or excuse me, utterly authentic to the character that he's playing. And yeah. it's so I once heard someone say the more authentic you are, the more captivating you are, the more vulnerable you are, the more captivating you are. And I feel like he he does that to a degree that most actors aren't even capable of reaching. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Mesmerizing, easy on the eyes, <laughs> authentic. I mean, he was such a fox when he was young. He really was. Because I remember him from The Godfather and right. from an older guy, and he wasn't bad looking. But man, when he was in his 20s, in Streetcar was maybe when he was 30-ish or late 20s or something. I think he was in his early 20s okay. then, yeah. And boy, you're not kidding. I, I've even watched... Um, there's an audition tape of him auditioning for Rebel Without a Cause, which he did not get that part. But um, there's maybe a three, four minute audition tape that you can Google online and watch. And even just that, like him standing there, slating for the camera, turning his head to the right, turning his head to the left, spinning all the way around. You can kind of see in his eyes, he finds this whole thing a little bit ridiculous, but he's very young and this is his first um, audition of this nature. So he's going along with it, but just... The story that's happening in his eyes and his little smirk as he looks at the camera, like, I could just watch that over and over again. And he's not even doing anything, you know? Yeah. yeah. People say, I didn't realize this, but James Dean and Elvis, who are two of the biggest sex icons, you know, just these these foundational men in American pop culture sure. modeled themselves after Marlon Brando. They did. James Dean very much so. Like, right. Almost studied him right. as a person, not only as an actor, but right. kind of started mimicking his, the way he dressed and right. sort of different mannerisms of his. Right. Which is just so interesting because to me, Marlon Brando is this crazy kook who was in The Godfather. <laughs> I had no idea that he was like the original Elvis. Yeah. You know? And we'll get into even more how intertwined these people's lives were. Um one thing I just want to get out of the way, because a lot of people refer to him as like the mumbler. You know, mm-hmm. he's like, well, you know, I was asking around as I was preparing for this episode. I was like, did, did, what do you think about Marlon Brando? And they're like, well, isn't he the one who mumbled a lot? <laughs> what, do, what do you think about that? Does, does this mumbling get to you? No, I mean, he definitely, I think that reputation is pretty legitimate because he even makes jokes about the fact that he mumbles um, or used to. <laughs> uh so I think that I, I understand where that comes from. But in terms of watching his performances in the films that I've seen and even interviews that I've watched, I don't think I would have noticed it if he hadn't been labeled with the mumbler or kind of notorious for being this actor that mumbles. I almost think it's kind of a suggestive thing where you hear that and then you pick up on it, right. in my opinion. Right. Because I just think it's he has a unique way of speaking, but I wouldn't really describe it as mumbling. Yeah. I mean, I think there are times... Uh, briefly where he's mumbling but i think it's more of a product of what acting was when he came up exactly you were supposed to dictate and you were a thespian and you spoke in a certain way that was understandable to people in the back row without any amplification whereas he's in that zone where he's he's intimate and authentic and and he talks like real people talk and it doesn't always come out very mm-hmm dictatorial you know if that's a word probably not but you know like in julius caesar he doesn't mumble at all no 
he's very Shakespearean. So uh, I agree. I, I, I think that it's a reputation that he got. And then I think you hit the nail really, 100. Like, you hit it on the head because I think it was in the timing that he was sort of being discovered. Acting was this whole other thing. Mm. And so when he came in and was understated and soft spoken and could also tap into his sort of feminine side while also being this sometimes edgy, mm-hmm. um, dangerous character. I think it, people didn't really know what to think about that because it was so different. Right. And it just instead of getting labeled maybe understated, it was more this guy, he mumbles, you know? Right. Yeah. And that's another thing that upon reading people review him back then was that he was in touch with this feminine side, which today I wouldn't see that looking back at these performances, but given the tradition of men in movies up until that point, sure. it was, you know, very, it had feminine qualities to it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So more about his career. He was cited by many actors as a major influence, including, as we said, James Dean, Elvis Presley, Elvis Presley was a terrible actor. So I don't know why, you know, he, I don't know how he was following in, <laughs> in, in Marlon Brando's footsteps, but Dustin Hoffman, Jack Nicholson, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Johnny Depp, even Ryan Gosling, and many, many more. I saw interviews with these guys saying they all look back to Marlon Brando as the actor to emulate. He also gave acting lessons to some famous people. Do you know who? Just a little bit of trivia here. I do not know. Michael Jackson. They actually became friends. I knew they were good friends. I didn't know he gave him acting lessons. Yeah. Sean Penn, John Voight, and Whoopi Goldberg. Interesting people. bunch. Yeah. yeah. He won a bunch of awards throughout his life. He was nominated for the Oscars. you know how many times? I know he won twice, but I don't know how many times he was nominated. Good. He won twice. He was nominated eight times. He won four On the Waterfront in 54 and The Godfather in 72. Do you know The Godfather... Oscar story. Yes. What 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 do you remember about that story? Well, when he won the Oscar for uh, The Godfather, he, I mean, we may be skipping ahead a little bit here to touch on this, but he's notoriously not interested in the business of show business yeah. and things like award ceremonies. And so he wasn't particularly interested in going there to accept this award, but he was very active in a lot of political issues and specifically Native American rights. And he felt like if he had five minutes to be able to speak to 85,000 people at once, he wanted to take advantage of that for something that he felt was more important. So he sent a Native American girl, Sashin Littlefeather, up to read this speech that he had prepared about the particular issues at the time, and they wouldn't let her read it. So she was just able to kind of, I don't know, I think they gave her like 30 seconds to just say, I cannot, you know, accept this award. On behalf of Marlon Brando, he would like to decline this generous award. And then she said, because of the treatment of Native Americans in in Hollywood and in film right now, which kind of was met with mixed responses of some applause and some booing. And it was a very awkward moment. And I think at the time, the um, Academy and, and, and some of the people in that room did not really appreciate that. Yeah. From my impression, there was a huge backlash in the media and from the American public, although there were some people who were sympathetic to it and, and maybe even applauded it. From what I can tell, because I think Marlon Brando eventually like had like was forced to sort of apologize to the American people, which is interesting because today 
every other speech is a political oh yeah speech of course and and speaking up for the oppressed and i just it's just a sign of the times that in 1973 that people would boo a uh you know native american woman saying that he's going to decline this because of the treatment of of our people yeah uh, you know today he you know she would get a standing ovation yeah, she'd be one in a crowd of many people giving a similar speech, you right. know. I think this is, perhaps we'll get to this more in depth later, but I think this is one example of how he was so far ahead of his time in so many ways. Mm. And, um, like, I've, I've watched these old interviews with him on the Dick Cavett show, mm. I think in 1973. They're really, to me, very interesting, and they're on YouTube. And he's talking, of course, uh, about some... <clears throat> Native American rights on that as well, but just a lot of the way he thinks, a lot of the way he approached life and himself and trying to understand what we're here for and looking out for the more vulnerable people in society, whomever that may be, in so many ways, I think he was very far ahead of his time and and his thinking was so progressive at the time, but I was recently watching some of these things and thinking these apply 100% to exactly what's going on in a lot of cases right now, you know? Yeah, and I have some ideas as to what about his childhood would lead him to have a personality trait that questions the authority and the society mm-hmm. in which he lived in. Um, other awards that he got, he had some Golden Raspberry Award nominations. Those are the anti-Oscars. Right. He won once for the Island of Dr. Mon- Mon- Moreau <laughs> in 1996. Have you seen this movie? I have not. I think because I have such a good impression of Marlon Brando and, and because I have such a soft spot for him, I almost don't want to watch this film, yeah. but I'm sure I'll have to at some point. It's notoriously bad whenever you want to talk about like a bad movie or like a disastrous production of a movie, people point toward the Island of Dr. Mon- Monroe. I want to say Monroe, but it's Monroe. Um, he got the worst supporting actor uh, a nom- or award that time. He got an Emmy, which I didn't know in nineteen, which I wouldn't even think he was on TV, but he was on TV in 1979 for the, I think it's our sequel to Roots called Roots: The Next Generations, hmm. and he plays a white supremacist. So he got he, he politically wanted to play. He wanted to be involved in a lot of projects that that uh, helped people understand racism and oppression. Mm-hmm. But since he's white, he would often get these roles as like the ignorant white man, like in Siren Sidonata or Sirenara. Have you seen that movie where no. he goes, where he's in Japan? He plays a racist white American GI who uh, I think eventually falls in love with a Jap. I didn't mm. I didn't watch the whole thing, but falls in love with a Japanese woman. Mm-hmm. But at first, is very bigoted against that. Um, and incidentally, uh, have you seen South Pacific the the musical? There's a similar storyline in that and i realized that south pacific came out the year the movie came out after sirenara or sirenara and um i was in south pacific in high school oh really and i as a asian american japanese american myself i played a white gi who falls in love with an asian woman and the asian woman was played by a white girl (laughs) and i had to sing this song about racism and about you know falling in love with people of color and and how you've got to be carefully taught you know to not like those people but anyway did, so, how did it go over um 
you know, I'm a terrible actor, but I like to sing. <laughs> so that's why I got the part. In fact, I think I, I think every guy who tried out for a part in South Pacific got a part. You know what I mean? One of those. Yeah. It's because they're so limited in terms of the met. So I automatically got a part. Um, IMDb, he is on one list of the top 100 greatest actors of all time. He's number, he's number two. Who do you think is number one? Ooh, Lawrence Olivier? Nope. Good guess, though. Oh. Jack Nicholson. Ah, He's number one? Number one. Are you kidding? Wow. I mean, there's a number of lists on IMDb, but he's number one. In 61, he got the Golden Apple Award for the least cooperative actor. In 1999, Time Magazine named him one of the most 100 most important people of the century. And upon reading this, I was like, why have I not known more about Marlon Brando? I mean, what's wrong with me? Okay. So let's get into his life here. Born in 1924, Omaha, Nebraska. My white side of my family is from Nebraska, so... I feel sort of a kid. And he kind of reminds me of my grandfather, actually. I have. My grandfather's from Nebraska, what right near of- Omaha, this little town called Broken Bow. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Most of my family's from Kansas, which is, you know, just, what, south of Nebraska? Um, have you driven through Nebraska? No, and I want to. I, I really have. want to. It is one of the most boring states to drive through. <laughs> I mean, it was, it's just kind of like these slight, rolly hills. Yeah. And then you'll see a tree, and then more slightly rolly hills, you'll see another tree. Um I mean, beautiful, but just interesting, I yeah. guess. Anyway, his ancestry is German, Dutch, English, Irish, so kind of typical mishmash of Western European, American. He was raised as a Christian scientist. Did you know any details about his Christian scientist? It's not really discussed a whole lot yeah. in, in anything I have read or watched. Right. But It seems like, you know, in name, they were Christian I, scientists. I think that's more the case. Yeah. He was raised more as son of two alcoholics. I think that was the bigger the religion, religion in the yeah, house. Yeah. <laughs> the religion of Jack Daniels. Is yes. Um, he had two older sisters. So what do you know about his childhood? I'll, I'll fill in whatever else you don't get to. But from what you've said so far, my guess is you know everything. So, so what, <laughs> what, what do you know about his childhood? Uh, what I know about his childhood is he... Um, so yes, both of his parents were... Um, pretty heavy alcoholics his father was a traveling salesman who spent a lot of time also cheating on his mother and he was kind of an abusive alcoholic um he would abuse his his mom when he would get upset with her and she was an alcoholic but marlon really loved his mom a lot and she actually was an actor in the local theater but he would often as a young kid have to go to the bars and find her and drag her home and he would do this thing to keep her alert where he would imitate the the barnyard animals or he would imitate neighbors or friends of theirs to make her laugh uh, and to keep her attention and to keep her awake. And I guess it's sort of rumored that that's where his very first acting kind of began. Mm-hmm. And um, his father was very withholding. He never really gave Marlon any approval, never made him feel loved. In fact, the opposite, he kind of made him feel worthless and unwanted and he would never amount to anything. And so he had a lot of a lot of issues with regard to his his father. But he did when up until about age seven, I believe they had a governess in their house who, who cared for the kids and he got very attached to her. He was very, very attached to her. And um she left one day saying she was taking a vacation, but she never came back. And that was like, for him, he's talked about that. That was like the biggest betrayal 
of his life and and kind of what created the foundation to to not really trust people and having trusting relationships and and kind of going through life feeling very unsafe and un, unloved unprotected right yeah good uh you truly know everything about this man's <laughs> life um yeah carrie you described his childhood very well um the only thing i would add that i read was i don't know if you mentioned this was his father and mother to some extent were both promiscuous and cheated uh, quite a bit and the mother was seemingly suicidal yes and um possibly depressed so so yeah um I want to talk a little bit more in detail about his, what you're calling governess or nanny. Uh, Her name was Ermi, apparently. Mm -hmm. And yeah, as you said, he was very attached to her. And from the age of two to seven, this woman took care of him. And she was half white, half Asian, like myself. And they were, you know, again, very close. And reportedly, they slept in bed together at night, every night, naked. Yeah. Which I don't know what to make of. On on one level, it's like, well, if you're two and it's hot in Nebraska and you're sleeping in bed, you sleep naked, no no big deal. I mean, if it was – if Marlon was a – a little girl, you probably wouldn't think much of it, but you know, it's like, why do we have to sexualize everything? I mean, in the olden days, we didn't even have clothes, so yeah, you know, it's 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 like, what's the big deal? But then you think seven years old, and da da da. Um, so it's unclear because Marlon, to my knowledge, never commented on his his feelings about that. No, Maybe he didn't even remember it. I don't know. The only thing I've heard him say about that was just describing it very fondly, but almost more like, you know, motherly, not anything strange about it. Just, I mean, he was seven, the the oldest, and maybe it was really hot. I don't know, but I I think it was more of a, that skin to skin contact probably really stuck out in his mind of the nurturing. Yeah. um, Now, at the very least, we can say that it provided with him a, sensual experience yes that was related to intimate but also sent i mean physical you know warmth with someone that was not his mother that was with a person of color Mm -hmm. which influenced likely his mate choices moving forward in life um but yeah you described it when he was seven she told him that she was going away but she would be back soon and he waited and waited and waited and waited, and then it, he realized suddenly that she was never coming back. And he wrote about this and talked about it and said that it was a big betrayal to him. And he said, quote, from that day forward, I became estranged from the world. So, um, yeah, uh, this is this relationship with Ermi was likely his only secure attachment. He had two alcoholic parents who were either distant or abandoning of him emotionally or abusive. And then there's this woman who is taking care of him all the time, and he has a you know really strong attachment with her. Uh, but she just disappears and lies to him and betrays him. And this is a huge attachment injury, 
which he's already been attachment injured by his parents, mm-hmm. just not being there for him. And so he just has this huge crushing blow to how he feels about himself, how he feels about other people, his trust and all that kind of stuff. Carrie, do you have kids, Carrie? Do you no. want to talk about that? Luke has a daughter, so I have a stepdaughter, but she's 23. Oh, okay. Are you going to have kids? We're trying. Do, would you have a nanny, do you think, if you had if you had some kids or one kid? Uh, well, it's a tough question. I can see the value, uh, not not a full-time nanny, but, but somebody that maybe comes and helps out um, just so you can re- maintain some sense of self or yeah. identity. But I, I think we're fortunate enough that my mom is going to be retired very soon, I think this yeah. year, and she's just dying, dying to have some grandkids. So I think it would probably be more of a thing where maybe she could help out a little bit. Yeah. But it's a really common thing today to have nannies. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. I don't want to nanny shame anybody, but, (laughs) but it's something that I feel like people don't think about in terms of the reality of child development and attachment, Mm -hmm. because a lot of nanny jobs are temporary and a lot of nannies will just disappear. You know, they'll just be like, they'll tell little Johnny, okay, so today's my last day and I'm really sad. And the, and the nanny might be legitimately sad, but the nanny's like, I'm moving on in life. Right. I'm a young woman, I'm going to college or I'm moving back, you know, to my home country or whatever. And the child is left there. The child doesn't know. Mm-hmm. The child is like, you're, you're, you're another mommy to me. Mm-hmm. But the, everyone else in society knows, no, that's a temporary nanny. But the kid doesn't know that. And especially when you have a kid who's being neglected and abused by their biological parents, they become even more dependent on that person. And then you add the fact that Marlon Brando had a nanny for five years, the same person, and you sleep with her all night. During the most formative years. Right. You know. And then and she didn't even say goodbye. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, we can write or blah, blah, blah. Um, she just lied to him and just ditched him. I mean, imagine that feeling of like, she didn't even care enough to say goodbye, you know, that she just dropped me like I was, you know, dead weight and, and how horrible that would make you feel deep down. Oh yeah. The way I like to describe this to people is like, think of the worst, most terrible breakup you've ever been through where you might have even kind of stalked them a little bit, you know, and you were just broken up about that. Times that, times a million, that's what this is like. Because as an adult, we have our faculties, we have foundational attachments we can turn to, we have our sense of self. When you're seven, you don't have those things, and especially having been abused. And just thinking about what that did to his psychology and to his neurons, literally, is is just very interesting to think about as we move forward into his life as an explanation of why he did some of the things that he did. Um, so as a child, he was defiant. Apparently, he locked teachers into rooms. He set fires. He broke school property. He was expelled. Um, apparently, he was starved for love and affection, apparently. So... Um, so, what can we say about his his psychology as a result of of his early childhood life? What what are some sort of summary things we can say about what his brain is like at the age of ten? He he describes his, the book that I've that he wrote, and, and I think, and even in the documentary, listen to me, Marlon, which is excellent. I recommend it for anybody um, who might be interested. But as 
incredibly insecure, like going through life, just feeling bad about himself and um, embarrassed. And he, he didn't complete, I know you said age 10, but like he didn't end up completing school. So he felt insecure that he was dumb Mm -hmm. and that he, you know, just wasn't like everybody else. And topping, you know, adding on to that, the trust issues and the, the anger he felt towards his father, which translated to anger toward any type of authority, any type of someone trying to control him or tell him what he should do or shouldn't do. Really, I think that created a really deep, I don't know what you would call it, but complex, something that that ran very, very all throughout his life. Um, I think not only until he was practically in his seventies that he kind of was able to get a harness on some of those anger issues right. and that reactivity. And I don't think he ever stopped having the defiance toward authority or, or toward being controlled. So um, that would be kind of my assessment. Yeah, good. Yeah. When I read about this, about his early life and learned about that, it everything made sense to me in terms of his later life. I think we have this thing in our society where we think, well, a successful, famous, loved person, they must have a, a good self-esteem, right? And they present themselves in interviews like they're confident and they're in movies and they're, every, you know, they're paid a lot. And so they must have high self-esteem. No, he had extremely low self-esteem. And the more I get to know famous people, I, the more I realize that there's, I've been indoctrinated into that belief that famous people are, are well put together. But of course, they're just like all of us who wake up in the morning and put both low self-esteems on with, you know, what <laughs> one leg at a time, one leg at a time. <laughs> and it's, it's just like anyone else. And again, because of Marlon's it just terrible, I can't think of a worse scenario for him growing up. I mean, his parents divorced. Uh, I think reportedly he had to threaten his father with a gun to stop abusing yeah. his mom mm-hmm. And it's it just sounds awful. When you add on to the fact that I think by nature he was a very, very sensitive kid. Yeah. And then you add on all the things that transpired, but right. he has that almost in his DNA of being this very sensitive soul. Right. And I would almost dare to think that famous people, by and large, as compared to the normal population of non-famous people are driven more by insecurities mm. and not feeling enough and not feeling like, so they have, that's kind of what drives them to achieve these exceptional things and, and receive attention and validation because they may not have that sense themselves. Right. They're constantly chasing a validation that normals <laughs> have just waking up in the morning yeah. or something, you know? Yeah. So the things we can say about his psychology emerging from childhood is neglected, emotionally abandoned, emotionally abused, you know, put down, physically abused. He witnesses extreme abuse and violence from his father. He was parentified is the language we use in my industry of being elevated in hierarchy above his mom to take care of her. And he seemingly channeled his pain into bad behavior and anti-authority behavior. And he had an anger problem, which is natural. And he was beginning to realize that he could get attention and love by performing for his mother. Okay, so teenage years. um, He goes to military school. 
he has more bad behavior, but he goes into acting class and really is for the first time finds something that he enjoys and that he gets rewarded for. Uh, he drops out. He tries to enlist in the military because it's during World War II at this point, but they don't let him in because he has an old football injury. Um, so at the age of 20, he goes to New York City to become an actor like his sister, and he hooks up with his mother figure, Stella Adler, who was his acting teacher. She was a famous method acting teacher. What do you do? You know anything about her? I don't know. I don't know a ton about Stella, but yes, you're correct. She be kind of she kind of became a surrogate mother figure for him, and she was basically the first person in his life to ever say he was good at something mm. and and encourage him to do this thing and let him know he had a talent, he had a gift, and that was like, I mean going 18 years before you really ever hear somebody say you're you're good at anything. Right. So I think for him that obviously I'm guessing made him more curious about acting and continuing to do it but at the same time kind of being welcomed into her actual family and right. feeling like somebody I think that it held two appeals for him in that sense. Right. Yeah. Uh, a mother figure, someone giving him self-esteem, like you said, for the first time in his life feeling good about himself, feeling rewarded for his hard work, and he just pours himself into acting, and he becomes a stage actor and, be, and starts to rise in the ranks pretty quickly as a, as a young man. And he is, uh, you know, starts to get good critic reviews and this kind of thing. And he's in a stage production of Street Call, a street, a street Car Named Desire, which was later made into the film with the same people, I believe. Actually, it was um, Jessica Tandy played the uh, the other woman, the role in the theater production, and Vivian Lee played her in the film version. Oh, okay. So you truly know everything. <laughs> um, so don't question me, Kirk. <laughs> so uh, this is now we enter the 1950s. Uh, which um, he's in his late 20s at this point. And he's a, he, he starts to act in movies. And he's a huge sensation right off, right out of the gates. Streetcar Named Desire, Viva Zapata, uh, Julius Caesar, The Wild One, On the Waterfront, Guys and Dolls. I've watched all these movies in the past couple of weeks. And I loved him in Julius Caesar, man. Just, <laughs> just loved him. I mean, he... That movie... As, as a whole was boring except for him right <laughs> like everyone else was like eh. and then every time like marlon brando just with that furrowed brow that he always has in that movie you know and the power with that mark antony speech on the roman steps you know he's just like i mean it's just amazing and he took that role because he wanted to prove that he could act act you know because he was getting a lot of flack for being a hack who the girls were liking or something. And yeah. For kind of playing that bad boy dangerous. And he was also, um, getting associated with, because he played the character Stanley Kowalski in the streetcar named desire. And it's obviously a, he's, he's, a, he's kind of a bad guy. And he was having people associate that character with him as, as though he had that personality and that really genuinely kind of upset him. It, it bothered him that, people thought perceived him as being any in any way similar to Stanley Kowalski. And he yeah. says he hated that character yeah. as a character, as a, as a person. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The character was physically abusive, you know, rash, uh, brutish, 
really mean to his control to, yeah. to Stella. Um, and I'm so glad that I watched this movie in prep for this because I finally know the origin of Stella. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Me too. When I saw it, I was like, okay. Yeah, now <laughs> all the Simpsons episodes make sense to me. Um, and on the waterfront, which I could have been a contender, you know, I finally, I finally understood that scene. Isn't it funny though how when you grow up hearing these lines from famous movies yeah. like that, like on the waterfront or even in The Godfather, and then when you watch them yourselves, how much more understated they actually are in the yeah. film than this impression that people do of it or that's kind of grown into this thing that's much right. bigger than it is he says that in my opinion in a very almost just like ugh, defeated way but yeah. when you hear people say it they're like i could have been a contender yeah. yeah but it's more like he says i could have i could have been some i could have been a contender i could have been i could have been somebody charlie and he's talking to his brother and it's this really sad scene because his brother is i mean spoiler alert 60 years later he is <laughs> His brother's basically telling him, if you don't do what I'm about to tell you, I have to kill you. Because mm-hmm. the mob is telling me I have to kill you. And, you know, and the face that Marlon Brando is, he's just like, Char- really, Charlie? And anyway, um, yeah. And then, and, and the Stella moment, he, it's this truly, you know, uh, pathetic, meaning like sad moment in the movie where he's he abused his wife and he's yelling up to his wife saying Stella come down here I'm sorry I was I'm a jerk I'm a terrible person and she's not and he's like Stella and this the the passion in that voice when you watch it you know it's 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 an he's, incredible he's scene. just wrecked yeah like, as a man yeah right it's not to me I always thought it referred to some melodramatic you know someone screaming at something for, for no reason or I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, why do you think at this point, um, I think I already asked you this, but why do you think he was such, do you have anything more to say about why you think he was such a big star? Because, you know, there are a lot of actors during this time that you could point to that were great. Um, why was it that he was such a, I mean, he was basically, I, and I didn't even know this, that he was basically Elvis before Elvis. You know, he was the, the screaming fans were screaming at Marlon before they were screaming at, at Elvis. Why do you think he was such a huge star? Well, I think uh, for one, I don't know how to how to articulate this exactly, but you know when you've met people in your life, or maybe you've even done this yourself at times, where when you really don't care about something, like you genuinely don't care, it will somehow find its way into your orbit and you can really take it or leave it but it's like it happens sometimes with relationships when maybe you've had a crush on somebody or you you still have feelings for an ex and then the second that you stop having feelings genuinely for them then all of a sudden they're super attracted to you mm-hmm. it's it's a weird convoluted way of explaining the way i'm the the dynamic i'm trying to explain but mm-hmm. i think i have to believe that part of it was that he gave absolutely no F's whatsoever about show business, about being popular, about being famous, about even doing movies, really. Like he it's so, so truthfully and so convicted about, you know, what he how he felt about that business. He was incorruptible. And if it all went away, you know, the next day, I, he I don't think he would have cared. And there's something that's very intriguing about mm-hmm. that type of a person or that type of an attitude. And I don't really think it's something that you can 
teach someone. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's well. You can't if even you really try to do that. You're diametrically not doing that because you're trying to exactly, do and that's like death to getting the thing that you want is desperately wanting it. So yeah. whatever that thing is, however you quantify that, like I think that was possibly a part of the draw to right. him, yeah. and that's because he was so different, so very very different than yeah. anyone else, especially in that business at that time. Right. But I don't know. For me, it's just. I'll come back to what I sort of said in the beginning was the the authenticity thing of for me, I'm more fascinated with Marlon Brando as a person, as a human being than as an actor. Mm. But both are quite fascinating to me. The the person Marlon Brando is just as authentic as the actor Marlon Brando. There's no separating the two. And I've never encountered or witnessed anyone else in my life um, seems to embody that. 100% of the time, no matter what circumstances they're in, no matter what's being said to them or expected of them, it's like this, I don't even know how to explain it. It's it's like this ultimate, this is going to sound lame, (laughs) ultimate truth. That's not it. It's more like um, he knew who he was, flaws and all, you know, the good, the bad. He, He never betrayed who he was for money, for fame, to make someone else feel less awkward in a moment. Like, I don't know if you've seen some of those interviews where he clearly is almost physically uncomfortable being asked about his films, especially as he got later in life. He had less and less patience for being interviewed about those kinds of things. Yeah, he, Hollywood. Would, he would sort of mess with them or turn the tables <laughs> yes. and ask, start asking them questions. Yes. And, yeah. and, and I don't think he was doing it to be a jerk. Mm-hmm. I think it was pop. Some of it probably for his own entertainment, but he was a very curious person. And I think he just he he didn't see the the importance of discussing those things when there were so many other things in life to learn about or to discuss. And sometimes that's why he would talk to one of the interviewers. And I think it was genuinely because he wanted to know something about about them. You know, he would even say just because I was in this film doesn't make you any different than I. And like you have just as many interesting things in your life, you know, to talk about, which is very, not something people did back in those days at all. Right. Yeah. And still don't really. Yeah. You said it really well. And that I thought a very similar thing, except well thought out. I, I sort of saw him as the fifties version of Kurt Cobain, you know, Nirvana famously hated being famous. Right. And as soon as their album became big, they instantly c- declared that grunge was dead. And I remember when they would say stuff like that. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, grunge is dead. And I was like, hey, I just discovered grunge. And why are you saying it's dead? And it was because to them, fame meant it was over. You know, like fame, if, if soccer moms are listening to me, then it's dead. It's now, yeah. it's it's over, you know, and and. Kurt Cobain, you know, famously would, you know, just seem to, you know, thumb, what are they, I'm not good. Thumb with, your nose. Yeah. Thumb your nose at fame and MTV and, you know, he'd wear dresses to things and he pretty quickly cut his hair and he was really known for that shaggy, you know, mm-hmm. locks of hair. And he like pretty quickly cut his hair. And I remember thinking like, man, he's really going against the whole grunge image by cutting his hair. And uh, so I, I thought Marilyn Brando gave off a very similar kind of vibe about just like, you know, just being himself and wasn't going to play the game. At the same time, though, he was he even said he was very insecure and really wanted validation. 
And so, and Kurt Cobain, I think, was the same way. I think Kurt Cobain hated fame, but also was chasing that dragon to get validation that he wasn't, that he never got from his family growing up. Does that make sense? It, yeah. d- it totally makes sense. I was just thinking because in in my sort of reading and and watching things about Marlon Brando and interviews and such, I I know this is going to sound a little bit contradictory, but I don't actually think he sought validation. I don't actually think that was one of his um, driving factors from from the outs- public. Yes, outside of his mom and his dad, he would write letters from New York begging them to write him a letter and asking how they were and and saying, I'm sure I'd love to see you soon. And, you know, could you just send me a letter? I'm feeling awfully lonely. And they wouldn't, you know. And so I think if there was any validation that he was seeking, it was from his, his parents. But I he he wanted nothing to do with the I sound like I'm like the world's biggest Marlon and Brando expert. I'm really not. But this is just from what I have observed and, and watched and read. But he he wanted nothing to do with the business of show business and he because it was phony and he knew they were selling him as a commodity and he didn't want to be sold as a commodity um but then there was the point in his career where it kind of you know after he's used to making a certain amount of money it's like the more money he made the more his lifestyle became more expensive and he had more children with various mm-hmm. women um the more he he kind of needed to do at least like one picture of a year and I think the more his hatred for acting grew, the okay. more that he kind of became reliant on it financially. And it's just, it's sad because when you watch him in some of these interviews and you can see him physically becoming uncomfortable, he would happily answer questions that had nothing to do with films. If somebody just asked him something as a person um, or to speak on a topic that he felt passionate about, he would react in a completely different way mm. and he was fully engaged and if it was about so did you think uh, such and such film was going to be as big of a hit he'd just be looking around the floor and uh, all over the room and then he might comment to somebody off camera and you know he just yeah. did not enjoy and in fact there were times that he said he was even frightened when he would be going i think the first time he went to the oscars the crowd was um kind of mobbing him and i forget who it was getting out of a car and he was genuinely like scared by that and huh. almost kind of mad at the crowd a little bit of like you can't just invade my personal space because right. I'm this actor yeah. person my my suspicion of that was his physical abuse well I'll, I'll provide my suspicion of that after the break so let's take a break okay we're back um yeah you carrie burbank expert of marlon brando <laughs> um at least between you and me, you mentioned something I didn't know, that at the Oscars, the crowd was moving in on him, which people do to stars, and he was very uncomfortable with that and a little hostile against that. And my suspicion of that is, which I'll get into more later maybe, is he suffered from PTSD and what we call complex PTSD because it was ongoing over time involving someone that's supposed to love him. His father was, you know very scary to him and traumatic and if you've never been through stuff like that it's hard to imagine because it's like well can't you just be like well dad's being dad but no it's when you're even up until teenage years if if you're if someone in your family is scary physically in that way with their anger and aggression it can literally rewire your brain so that 
whenever there is a threat, it triggers this response of a post-traumatic stress response, and you can become quite deregulated and can become very upset and hostile to get people away from you. And so there were signs of it. I can't remember the exact quote. Maybe I'll find it in my notes here in a second. But he talked about he didn't like being suddenly touched, Mm. which is a sign of PTSD. There wasn't a lot of other signs of PTSD. I wish I could talk to him and really kind of go through it. But it would make total sense that he has PTSD. I do know that he notoriously did not like loud noises. Right. Yeah. Loud noises Mm -hmm. was another... Another symptom of PTSD. Now, I don't have enough to go on to really definitively say, but it would make total sense to me that he suffered in that way. Um, Also, uh, just one more thing to add to what you were saying, Carrie, earlier in terms of his, you know, being a huge star. As a child of an alcoholic family, you become keenly aware of the state of your parents. Mm -hmm. Because when your parents are in a a stable mood, they don't drink as much. And when they're unstable, they tend to drink more. And when they drink more, so not only do you need to know the emotional state of your parents to know if they're going to drink more, but you also need to know how drunk they are. Because, you know, a a, a five-drink mom is different from a 10-drink mom, which is different from a 15-drink mom. And, and your entire life as a five-year-old is dictated by how drunk your parents are. If your parents aren't alcoholic and they're stable from day to day, you don't need to pay attention to your parents' state because they're always the same. But in this instance, when you're a child, you're forced to develop the skill that you shouldn't be forced to, to develop, which is to become super aware of other people's states. And he seemingly had that. He he seemingly was very good at reading people. Is that at all similar to what I've heard called hypervigilance? Hypervigilance often you could apply it to this, yeah. But it more often refers to being very observant, hyper observant of what's going on around you to avoid threats. Got it. Essentially, you know, like. Um, that person across the room seems a little upset and I'm going to keep my eye on that person because that might be a threat to me. Mm -hmm. So I'll keep an eye. Whereas other people, if they're not suffering from a trauma reaction might notice that person upset, but it doesn't kind of trigger a response. This is just general human, uh, alcoholic family stuff. You know, you ask any child of an alcoholic and they will say, Oh yeah, I, I was always keenly, observant of where my parent was Mm -hmm. with regards to their drinking and use. And so what this does is it's further neglect because the child resents this for like, why am I having to take care of my parents? And they're not taking care of me. They're not noticing me. And you also don't develop a keen sense of who you are because you're spending too much time on other people. But you develop this really great skill Mm -hmm. that you can use. And one of the ways you can use it is to gauge how other people respond to you in a way to manage so how they respond to you so you can get their approval, you know, how you walk, how you talk, how you present yourself, you know, the, your acting style, all those things might have been influenced by this, you know, great skill at reading other people's sure. states. That know? is a thing that has been discussed a lot about him is that he, he'd pretty much size people up in a, a matter of seconds and, 
and I'm sure that plays into the charisma, right? Because it's like you know how to connect with people. You know how to get what you want from them. Or right. in his case, I think he was more trying to figure out who he was dealing with. Right. You know. Because when he was a kid, if he didn't know who he was dealing with, his life would completely fall apart. And, and But as an adult, he could use that skill. And he was shall we say, hypervigilant about who are you? Can I trust you? Mm-hmm. Are you a good person? Are you a bad person? Are you against me? Are you for me? Um, and so that affected also, I think, his his rise to fame in some ways and his ability to figure out how to act uh, in a lot of ways. Okay. So just kind of quickly going through his 30s, which I find to be a very interesting time in his life. Uh, 1954, 1964, um, between those years, his mother dies in 1954, and to some, this sort of marks the end of his golden years, you know, which was the early 50s with all those big movies you were talking about earlier because it was you know, the way, you know, for some people it's like, oh, your mom died, that's really sad. But to him, not only did his mom die and was that sad, but so died the possibility of ever having the nurturing relationship that he ever wanted from her. And that can be 10 times, 100 times worse than the grief of losing your mom. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So he, he, had, he made a several, he made a number of big movies because he was a big star during this time, but none of them were as well liked as his earlier work, which I don't really understand because I've watched some of these movies and I still think that he's great you yeah. know, in them and I still think the movies are fine. But for some reason, it, it, maybe it was because people were getting tired of him or something. I don't know. What do you think? It's I don't know. I, I've watched. They weren't terrible. Do you no, know I mean? I, some of the um, commentary that I've heard on some of his, whether it was a bad sort of patch that he had of a number of years of sort of failed films, or why one in particular was a flop, it 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 doesn't make a lot of sense to me in this day and age because I think just the movies have changed so much. And like you said, you could look at one versus another and not see a whole lot of difference. But I think sometimes in those days, it was whether it was like a fight between the studios or this such and such thing happening or him getting a reputation for this. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know because we weren't there at the epicenter of that culture, but I think it was because he was, his fame grew bigger than his acting career in some ways and I think people wanted to see him kind of fall. That could be true. I also know that he was starting to become a little bit of a handful on sets and running up budgets, running right. over budget, at times not wanting to be cooperative about a certain element of the script or story. Totally. But, but it was always because he was trying to fight for something that he believed made the story better. And I have to say, in many instances, I've heard from people who worked with him and, and they said that he was usually right. right. So it wasn't just... for the sake of being you know a diva or i think it came from good intentions but then i'm sure at some point it butted up against that oh they're trying to tell me what i have to do and no one's going to tell me what i have to do you know right because when i gave into authority as a child it meant extremely bad things for me in terms of my dad controlling every aspect of my family and me and so therefore i have to be hyper vigilant about fighting against that authority because it's a threat. Um, okay, so in his 30s, first wife, Anna Kishfi, uh, they got pregnant, and so they got married. She was half Indian, half British. So here we get into this woman of color, 
attraction, which is, um, you know, fine by me. They had one son. She was drinking a lot. They fought a lot. They got divorced. During this time, he was a notorious womanizer. Do you know all the people he reportedly womanized? Well, I know that they're in the hundreds, if not thousands, but um, I know some of them, but he, in the biography that he wrote um, that I've recently just read, he's actually quite respectful in that he doesn't name the women. He'll tell maybe a story about when I was with this person or this... Or he's like, it rhymes with Fairlin from Flo. (laughs) He did talk about a little... Just like a short love affair that the two of them had, um, and a couple of other people he named, but most of them were kind of remained an anonymous. Right. God, I wish he would have said it, but <laughs> just for my own curiosity. But yeah, he like rumor had it, or or maybe even the women talked about it. Marilyn Monroe, Shelley Winters, which mm-hmm. is kind of a funny th- picture in my head. Grace <laughs> Kelly, Jackie O. Oh, uh, apparently. Um, you know, I don't know. This is just all internet stuff, but uh, but I would believe it because uh, you know some of them have been confirmed. He was bisexual, which I had no idea about. He reportedly, you know, of the men that he's no, and I was with? I was really curious when I read the autobiography. Um, well, he had a biographer write it with him, but um, it's his words, and it's called "Songs My Mother Taught Me." If anyone's interested. I was curious to see if he would touch on that in the book because he he goes into a lot of personal detail and it doesn't seem like he's attempting to hide anything. And I had heard from other sources that he would sometimes have love affairs with men, including women as well as men. But he never made any reference to that in his book. So I don't know if it's true. I kind of feel like that many people probably wouldn't say it if there wasn't some element of truth to it. But I guess who knows? Yeah. And I don't know the sources, but from my memory of what I read, it sounded credible that he had been together with James Dean, with Cary Grant, Rock Hudson, and Lawrence Olivier. It would make more sense with Rock Hudson. Um, Was Lawrence Olivier gay? I don't know. I don't believe so, but I don't know. (laughs) Um, But anyway, uh, or bisexual, I don't know. But if half of it is true, he had sex with, he's probably the... You know, he's like the the Kevin Bacon of sex, you know, like everyone's within six degrees of of, <laughs> of having prof- sex with with uh, Marlon Brando. I mean, he, he you know, um, just seemed to attract and be attracted to a lot of different people. I think that speaks a little bit to his what I see in his um, his personality of this eye contact that he would make so deeply with anyone that he was working with or being interviewed by or talking to. And this connection that I feel is almost visible, if that makes sense, like watching it on screen, Mm -hmm. visible, that's not the right word, but like palpable, maybe that's a better way of describing it, of wanting to like see through you into your soul and know who you are and in a real way, not the outside fluff, not the what you want me to think or not what, you know, but really get right to the heart of a person and being able to admire whatever that is, whether it's a male or female, I could see that potentially being part of his personality. Or I saw this interview with Larry King that he did some like in the nineties 
And even the way he's looking at Larry King, it's like those memes go around. Like, I want, you know, my band to look at me the way that such and such looks at this. It's like even the way Marlon Brando was looking at Larry King. And I think he kissed him on the lips at the end of the interview. Um, cause I think well, let's add Larry King to the room. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but um, I just did a Leave really... Leave the suspenders on. <laughs> what about the glasses? Glasses <laughs> off. Um, yeah, I just did a really horrible job of explaining that but i think what i meant was him being able to see the beauty in each person perhaps regardless of gender Mm -hmm. yeah and you know people's sexualities are complicated and maybe he was quote-unquote born that way uh but i think another hypothesis is that he was so anti-authority and questioned authority so thoroughly that he looked at society's rules about sexuality and said, I'm not going to follow that rule. That's I'm going to follow, I'm going to explore, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to see, you know, why can't I have sex with men? Society says I'm not supposed to, but I know authority is bullshit. Right. You know, and so I'm going to, I'm going to try this out it is, is, is another, again, sexuality is odd and. Right. And it's more complicated than knows. that, but, but it's possible because he, he, when he would talk about, um, you know, forming your opinions about things. Don't listen to what someone else tells you. Don't just take what you've read in a newspaper as fact. Like, figure it out for yourself. Form your own opinion. You know, kind of, I mean, that's obviously what he did throughout his life. He was a self-taught man, and yeah. he was incredibly intelligent, yeah. incredibly articulate. Yeah, he learned and- French to talk to Tahitians, I believe, and there's an interview on YouTube that I saw where he is fully being interviewed in French. I have never seen that. Yeah. Wow. And he's on French TV being, and he's, I don't speak French. I took three years of it in high school, which would, you would think would you could amount say, like, to something. You say like, hello, where's the bathroom? I, I don't even know those things. <laughs> I could say that in Spanish. But uh, the, uh, he, he famously could speak like seven languages, many of them pretty well, and was very into philosophy and there's a lot of interviews that I saw on YouTube of him speaking very intelligently. He's so eloquent and he's just any topic you can get him on. And he has such interesting thoughts and theories and perspective on that. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Larry King and maybe some people out there would be waiting for us to talk about the famous interview in which he, talks about Jewish people. Do you remember this interview? You know, I I have not watched that one. Yeah. Probably because, again, it might taint my it's, opinion of him. So, it's pretty bad. I mean, He's he, pretty old at this point, right? Yeah. He uses, you know, he's, so Larry King is, is Jewish himself, right? Right. And in the end, Larry King, I think, even said, you know, because it was a big controversy, I think Larry King said, look, you're all taking this out of context, you know. Marlon Brando was more than just this quote that you're pulling out. But it's pretty bad, you know. It's just it's 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 what's interesting is that when it came to black people, when it came to native americans, when it came to asians and tahitians, he was he was pretty progressive. You know, was he perfect in today's eyes? I would say, you know, not likely, but you know, in terms of his time and being a white guy, He was definitely on the cutting edge. But when it came to Jewish people, for whatever reason, he started talking about how Jewish people are are in charge of Hollywood and how they won't allow negative portrayals of Jewish people in movies where – and he goes on to say like you've had – 
negative portrayals and he used a lot of colorful language but you know he said they you know the Jewish Hollywood allows for negative portrayals of white people of black people hmm. of Asians but they won't allow for negative portrayals of Jewish people now I have no idea where he was getting this from, or but it sounds very quintessential anti-Semitic. Well, that's really interesting to me, um, only because I have seen interviews with him in the seventies where he actually—it sounds like he was almost giving the exact same type of speech, but he also included Jewish people in that when he was talking about minorities, um, Indian, Native Americans, Black people, um, and he cites you know, Jewish people. And I've, I've heard, I think at least one or two where he was more in defense of them as a group that has been marginalized at times. And, um, so that's surprising for me to hear that. Right. So he's, I think he just talked a lot about a lot of things and there's a couple quotes. Oh, it's in the playboy magazine, actually. Oh, 1979. <laughs> that, that's, that was back when people actually did read playboy for the for articles. The articles. <laughs> um, it was actually like, you know, kind of a well-known place to read in-depth interviews with people. But he, so I'll just read the quote. Okay. You've seen every single race besmirched, but you've never saw, but you never saw an image of the kike because the Jews were ever so watchful for that. And rightly so. They never allowed it to be shown on screen. The Jews have done so much for the world that, I suppose, you get extra disappointed because they didn't pay attention to that. So I think that's what I was saying earlier. He also said on Larry King in 1996, he said, Hollywood is run by Jews. It is owned by Jews, and they should have a greater sensitivity about the issue of, of people who are suffering. Because they've exploited, we have seen the, we have we have seen the N word and the grease ball. We've seen the chink. We've seen the slit eyed dangerous Jap. We have seen the wily Filipino. We've seen everything, but we never saw the kike because they knew perfectly well that that is where you draw the wagons around. Hmm. So, you know, again, in, in terms of the delivery, uh, not so great. And maybe there's a sensitive notion behind all that. Uh, but obviously, when you read it, it just comes across as yeah. just Yeah, it definitely, of, to me, that smacks of kind of him turning into the old, cranky, slightly losing it man right. stage because, and I, I probably some of that stems from his whole life being this person who says whatever he thinks does whatever he wants. And for the most part, people are in favor of it. And yeah. maybe at a certain point, you just get so used to doing that, but you're not necessarily being as careful with what it is you're saying. Right. Because like I was saying, referencing an interview that it was in the early 70s on the Dick Cavett show, he basically says a similar type of thing. I don't think he addresses the issue with the how the Jewish people are portrayed in film specifically, but he does with all the other you know races you just described. And it's in a much gentler, kinder, comes across as much more sympathetic that he's right. trying to say, it's not fair that these people are portrayed this way and we just accept it as okay or funny, or right. it's like they're a caricature of what we think of this race or this group of people and right. it's not okay. So it's really surprising to read that, but I feel like part of it is a similar message that he spoke about 20 some years prior right. in a much more articulate way. And the part about the Jewish people, 
that's a little surprising to me. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to defend it and I'm not going to say that it wasn't misguided what he's saying. It's hard to know because when you actually listen to the quote, it's not exactly clear what he's saying precisely. Yeah. But it definitely rings of a little insensitivity at least. Yeah. So I and I remember hearing about those quotes and being like, "Oh, Marlon Brando, you know, like the Mel Gibson thing. Like, isn't Mel Gibson yeah. like against Jews? You know, the, you just get these these snippets from media." And but upon learning the full breadth that I could about Marlon Brando's life, it's like, oh, in context with all of his civil rights work, he stood behind MLK when he gave the the "I Have a Dream" speech. He did the March on Washington. He was heavily involved. You know, he sent a Native American to accept his, you know, to take the or to refuse the Oscar. You know, he's, uh, he took a number of movies. He did a movie about anti-apartheid. He did Roots. He did all these things in the context of everything. And he said this, this what he said about Jewish people. It's like it doesn't necessarily justify what he said, but in the context of everything, it's like well. He was headed in the right direction in a lot of ways. Yeah. And maybe he got misguided in a couple of ways or he had a particular thing against Jews. Who knows? But I think, I mean, Stella Adler was Jewish. And so he actually had a, quite a few people in his life throughout his life that were some of the closest friends and people um, to him. And I think when I saw him on Larry King live, I don't know why we're doing such a deep dive on the Jewish thing, but um, we're really going for it. Um, but he, Larry King thought he was Jewish and he was like, well, half. He's like, not really, but like I identify because kind of growing up in New York around so many Jewish people, I think he felt he said culturally I identify with them. But um, what you had just said about that quote from the late 90s coming out a little bit, I would say, insensitive or probably not the, the best thing you could have said or the best way of phrasing that. But it's funny because it's almost true to Marlon Brando's line of thinking in that you shouldn't make an assessment about someone based on something you've read in a magazine or a paper or seen in the press, but do some reading, do some, you know, learning research and, and then decide, like, don't, don't base it on what someone else has told you. So it's almost true to that point of, if you take a look at the whole breadth of his work, his life, where he spent his, his money and his time and where he put his priorities, I think it's, pretty counter to one insensitive statement about a certain group of people. Right. Again, we're not going to apologize for (laughs) anti-Semitism, but again, to label him as this bigoted, terrible human being is uh, denies the humongous amount of work that he did that was very positive, right? So I want to just touch on a couple things really quick. He had a second wife. In 1960 to 1962, again, she got pregnant. They got married. Mexican-American actress, Movita Castaneda, uh, two children. He had several affairs during that. Then uh, during this time, he had a girlfriend, Rita Moreno. Mm -hmm. Do you know about this? What do you know about this? I just know that their love affair went on for many, many years, and it was kind of tumultuous. Yeah. And... I think they would have sort of these big breakups, these big dramatic things, and then they'd get back together. And yeah. that went on for many years. Yeah. It went on for eight years from 1954 to 1962 during the time he was married twice. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know the name, Rita Moreno, she's from West Side Story. She's the main Puerto Rican girl. She's the 
the main girl other than the main girl. <laughs> the girl's like, you know, anyway, and she's actually Puerto Rican herself. And she wrote a whole memoir about her life, and she wrote about uh, her time with Marlon Brando. And she said that having sex with him was, quote-unquote, earth-shattering, <laughs> which is actually a, a trait. I haven't talked about borderline yet. For those who listen to the podcast, they know all I do is ever talk about borderline. But <laughs> but I, I want to talk about borderline personality a little bit. And, and I always, whenever I talk about it, I'm, ba- I'm talking about not the personality disorder, but I'm talking about the personality trait, which is much more of a broad you, know, you can think of it, the personality disorder as a subset of the of the personality type, and because he was, you know, he uses the word betrayed. You know, it wasn't that he was hurt by his nanny when she left. It wasn't that he was sad or grieving. He felt betrayed, and when your loved ones betray you, humiliate you, wrong you, and that is your narrative because she did <laughs> just abandon him. And it is usually associated with abandonment and rejection. You grow up with a sense of you're very easily triggered to feel abandoned and betrayed by other people. Mm-hmm. And when you go through that, you become very needy of affection and love because you're walking around in this constant state, and I don't use constant lightly, in a constant state of feeling betrayed and hurt and alone. And one of the things that people will often turn to is sexuality as a way of trying to fill that void. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a concrete way to get people to respond to you in the here and now. If you could become a very good sexual partner, you can get people to, in that moment, go like, wow, you're really good at this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or, wow, you're really good at this. You know, it's a very, it, whereas the kind of attachment we're really looking for <laughs> that, the kind of attachment you're really looking for. I bet you when you came on the podcast today, you wouldn't think I would be imitating <laughs> orgasmic sentences, but, but the, um, the, uh, what people are really looking for is attachment, love, security, ongoing and loyalty. But since people with borderline personality don't think that's even possible, they'll take the shortcuts to get, a little bit here and there. And sometimes they'll, they'll turn to sex. And people with borderline tend to be extremely good in bed. Really? Yeah. In fact, for you listeners out there and for you, Carrie, you can maybe think back on your best people in bed and go and, and then also think about their personality. And they might be the most insecure, the most dramatic, the most reactive, the most sensitive people that you've ever met. Because not that that is necessarily associated with sexuality, but they learn as their sexuality emerges that they can use that to get something that they're so desperate for, which is someone to stay close to them. And of course, sexuality can be a doorway to that, but it's just a doorway. Mm-hmm. Uh, true attachment is through love and stability and loyalty and dedication and listening and affection and you know communication, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Well, my understanding of, of kind of touching on what you're talking about, when people you know have some sort of experiences in their upbringing that perhaps cause them to develop, whether it is traits of borderline or kind of what we're talking about with Marlon Brando here, it's like all you internally are desiring is love 
trust, safety, affection, and, and all of these things, but then you end up acting out in a way that prevents anyone from actually truly being close with you. So in his way, it was having multiple women all the time so that it, it, he, I believe I heard him say this once, where if any one of them were to leave him for some reason, well, he had four or five others, so he was never truly going to be alone, but he was also never truly what he would describe as like a healthy, loving relationship. He wasn't ever capable of being loved because he would never be true to any of these women and was sort of constantly self-sabotaging in that way right. of keeping everyone at arm's length, even though you, you really want the opposite of that. Right. Because of continual betrayal and then reenacting these chaotic relationships, he and others will develop a very huge distrust of themselves and of other people to the point where any sign of difficulty will be interpreted as, well, that's it, mm -hmm. or, well, that means they don't love me, mm -hmm. or that's the end of that. And, you know, when you're in a, even in 10 year long relationship, but particularly in the first couple of years, you have to withstand a lot of signs, you know, especially, you know, think about the first five dates. It's like, oh, he didn't open the door for me. Jerk. He probably is a you know, terrible massage. You know, like you hear these stories, people will just like, they'll read into a lot. Oh, yeah. You know? Or I texted him, but he hasn't texted me back in a couple hours. What does that mean? You know, mm -hmm. you have to be able to, now I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer to those questions. Maybe he should have texted you back in two hours. But <laughs> the point is, is that there's a lot of tiny little threats to does this person really love me? And you need to be able to withstand those. And when you are like Marlon Brando and have this betrayal, borderline insensitivity, lack of self-issue, you will tend to overreact to because you'll feel extremely hurt mm -hmm. and will feel justified in reacting against. And so my suspicion is that even though he was deep down desperate for love and affection and stability – most of the women around him, and maybe men, felt very much rejected by him, mm -hmm. not the other way around. Right. And yeah. which is common to people who, you know. And it's sort of like the perfect storm because if he did have, you know, borderline traits, he was also extremely good looking and extremely famous and grew up in the 50s, 60s when there's a lot of free love going on. And so he was like the epicenter of attraction. And at the same time, like the prime rejector or something, yeah. you know, I'm just curious in your experience as a therapist, if you've ever you know, worked with somebody with this type of um, borderline traits or this these kinds of reactions where you're constantly scanning the horizon for threats and, and overthinking and and, you know, what does that mean about me? How do you um, how do you work with people like that? How do you get them to sort of minimize those instances or to not get as, I don't know if the word is scared reactive. or upset or reactive about when those little things happen? Good question. Complicated answer. In a nutshell, the prime thing is a, what we call a corrective emotional experience where I as a therapist provide a stable attachment that they will try to reject or they'll try to involve me in tests to see whether or not I'm worthy of trust. And I will do everything in my power to prove to this person that I am trustworthy and that I do care and that I am stable. And through that experience, 
into their soul, they internalize, okay, there's one example of one person who I can depend on, who won't let me mess with them, who has boundaries, but is close and warm and true. And through that emotional experience, they can begin to believe in the human race again and in themselves. It also involves me reflecting back to them in a way that you would to a three-year-old because they weren't given this in terms of like reflecting emotions and valuing them and letting them be narcissistic a little bit because that's normal. Um, But other techniques have to do with awareness and emotional regulation and serenity and avoiding the kinds of behaviors that lead to further abuse. There's also trauma recovery work. It's complicated. But anyway, does that does that <laughs> yeah, make some no, sense? Th- absolutely. Is that surprising to you at all or is that kind no, of No, I was just curious as how you as to how you begin to approach that because it is so prolific if it could be a hundred instances of those in a day of over analyzing, over interpreting taking things to mean something about you that have nothing to do with you that I just find that the process of kind of undoing that wiring um, to be interesting. Yeah. The common response is, well, just tell people to knock it off, you know, (laughs) tell people to stop doing that. But if it was that simple, they would have stopped it themselves. Exactly. It, It has to do with something deeper than that, that has to be experienced, you know? And I specialize in borderline personality and, have worked with many people. And for therapists out there listening, they know this is that borderline clients are very difficult to work with. They're very challenging. They, they, they can become very aggressive. And like Marlon Brando, they know how to read people. So imagine Marlon Brando coming into my office. Right. Okay. And how he would, you know, take no shit from me and would try to figure out what I was doing and would call me out on stuff and mm-hmm. would try to you know, mess me up a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. and might at some point be like, you're a phony. This is ridiculous. And I, as a therapist would know what I was dealing with and would not react against him and would let him say things like, you know, so you're upset. You know, I get that and try to remain stable in that, but I'm still a human being and can still be hurt and can still feel bad about myself. And so because these people are very good at you know, reading people and when they get up, when they feel, when their trauma is triggered and they feel upset, they attack and then, and they know how to attack you. Right. Exactly where to hit you. Yeah, exactly where to hit you. Even a therapist who, you know, presumably has done this, uh, you know, for a long time, like myself, they can absolutely get under my skin because I'm just not very good at protecting. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm also just not very good at protecting myself. I think I'm just not, I don't know. But anyway, yeah, I, they've made me look into the depths of my flaws, and it's not pretty, and I don't. It doesn't feel good, and but I have to remain stable for them, you know. And I'll get my help with my own therapist yeah. or something. But over time, the idea is is that they internalize our relationship and begin to heal from that severe trauma regarding their own parents growing up, you mm-hmm. know. But it takes a long time. And most therapists avoid it because it's, um, you know, gives you a lot of stress. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, okay, so back to Rita Moreno from West Side Story. Now, what did she call their sex? Earth shattering? Earth shattering. Okay. 
Uh, she actually goes into quite detail. Did you need to do another impression of that? Or <laughs> yeah. Are we good? Earth shattering! <laughs> I don't know why people sing when they're in bed, but don't, don't judge me. You know, This is a judgment-free podcast. Um, she said that Marlon Brando was very needy. She said that he needed women to love him, which is consistent with Borderline. She said he was frequently betrayed by her. No, no, sorry. She said he frequently betrayed her emotionally, which is ironically what happens with people with borderline is their very fear is what they, you know, make other people go through. She said she dated Elvis, but she only did so to make Brando jealous. And she got pregnant and he forced her to get an abortion and he was insensitive about it apparently. And when he fell in love with his third wife, which I'll get into in a second, she was terribly hurt. And she found his sleeping pills in his house, and she tried to kill herself by swallowing them. Brando's assistant found her and saved her life by taking her to the hospital. She woke up in the hospital, and she never rekindled her off-and-on relationship with Marlon Brando. I just think that's fascinating. That's the, I mean, she, she wasn't just in West Side Story. She was in a whole bunch of things. Yeah, And... I just find that to be just someone should make a movie about Rita Moreno and Marlon Brando. You know, I just think that would be the most interesting movie of all time. So third wife, Tarita Terry Ipaya. I don't know how to pronounce that. Longest relationship, 10 years. They were together. I think they got pregnant and just like all the other women and he married her. She was from Tahiti. She was a lot younger than him, 18 years younger. This is when he was filming Mutiny on the Bounty, which was near Tahiti, apparently. Tahiti's in the South Pacific. Mm -hmm. And he fell in love with Tarita, and he fell in love with Tahiti. He, it was, for the first time in his life, he felt like he found peace. Mm -hmm. Have you heard this, his accounts of this? Yeah, he, um, he describes it as, because the people in Tahiti had no sense of who he was as a movie star, they don't really have a concept of anything like that in their culture at the time. And to, for someone to even be slightly arrogant, they would just get so ridiculed and made fun of that they would stop putting on whatever air. So it was just a kind of a society where people just did not, it was very, you know, equal. And um, he just said that he could see joy in their eyes. They were very joyous people who obviously lived, you know, very simply and they appreciated the simple things and right. he said like the sunsets and the the beauty of the island was just like nothing he'd ever seen before and so yeah he had this peaceful contentment that he'd never felt before and i think enjoyed that people just treated him like anyone else for right. the first time in you know most of his adult life right. and he ended up buying an island um, out there a small island and spending a lot of his later years in life out there right. and doing things to help the tahitian people yeah and it also, you know, is possible in addition to all that, which I didn't know all that, that his nanny was half uh, Indonesian, which she might have looked a little Tahitian to yeah. him. And so that might have been an additional resonance that he felt upon, you know, going there. People, I hear this. I, I know I have friends of mine who grew up in difficult addict alcoholic homes and upon going to like Hawaii or Fiji or something I've heard similar accounts from them of just this this serenity that they find out there on the beach and surfing and and 
they stay there and they love the people, you know, the, 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 like you say, the kind of simple is a funny word, but you know, just like non-complicated, uh, you know, way of living, hang loose kind of a thing. And it seems that Marlon Brando uh, really fell for that, um, and really valued that. And, and in a way it's like the first happy element to his story, you know, of this up until this point, it's like, you can't really point to anything and say like, yay, Marlon, but this I can. It's pretty clear that he finally found something. Yeah. Just like, oh, I can. Really, I think I that, can breathe. I here. think that was the the starting point of him, because he was a man that was constantly searching, constantly. I mean, he he said he spent hundreds, if not millions, of dollars in like psychotherapy, and he was constantly searching for not only answers about why are we here, what is life about, but himself. Why did I end up this way? How did my childhood affect me? Um, why do I respond this way in these t- types of circumstances? Always curious, always searching, always learning. And I think he eventually got to this point where he was able to forgive his father and undo a little bit of the rage. He started meditating and and kind of started um, drifting away from some of the habits in his younger years in terms of behavior and issues that were sort of stuck in him. And I think the beginning of that was sort of finding Tahiti and then kind of going from there in terms of how his life, I think, got a little more peaceful um, as as he got older. There's a thing about that I want to mention that we haven't talked about yet, which is he, okay, he hated his father. We've established that. His father was a, was a terrible human being, physically abusive, alcoholic, traveled a lot, abandoned his family, cheated on his wife. He also the, lost all of Marlon's money when right. he was older. That's what I want to get to. Oh, sorry. Is, is, no, no. Is, um, he, and maybe you know more details about this, in Marlon, I think it, this was still in the 50s or something-ish, or maybe early 60s, Marlon's business and money affairs were getting kind of big. And so he handed over all of his affairs to his father, which is, when I heard that, I was like, what? You know, like, but it makes total sense. And then his father proceeded to lose all of his money. But it makes total sense because, again, he's a human being, Marlon Brando, and is, well, to the day he died, probably just so desperate for approval and closeness with his parents. And he was willing, even though his dad made fun of him for being an actor, called said only women and homosexuals are actors you know that's not a real man's job uh you know was always putting him down and just so such a just just sound i just i just hate this guy you know Mm -hmm. and then he hands his entire business there's even an interview have you seen it with the two of them yeah when he was they're in marlon's house i don't know where they are but yeah marlon's a little younger and it's him and his dad and they even have like a little fight on camera it's like a little shtick of Play, play fighting, but you can if you watch, you can see there's so much subtext in Marlon's face right. when the interviewer asks his dad, "Did he have the normal upbringing as a child?" And you can tell Marlon's really yeah, kind of looking at him. And then his father's like, "Yeah, it was a normal upbringing anyone could have." And Marlon's like, "Oh boy." Well, he said something to the effect of, "I think he may have had a little more trouble with his parents than most kids." And that's when Marlon's eyes are like they kind of. Oh yeah, he was like saying like he was kind of a willful child. You know, as a 
Dad, I wonder why I was a willful child. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, just so interesting. You know, like it, it just explains so much about his behavior and how intensive a human being he was and, you know, his relationship. I don't know. I just like you, I'm more fascinated with his personal life than his his working life, which is also, you know, fascinating. Um, so I want to get into some last points here. But before we do that, let's take a little break. All right, we're back with Carrie Burbank, expert on Marlon Brando, or, you know, someone that knows a lot more than I do. And I want to talk about it. We can't talk about Marlon Brando without talking about how he gained a lot of weight yeah. throughout his career. What, what are your thoughts about, about that? It, it makes me just one more reason that I sort of really feel for this guy in terms of kind of the way his life went. I think instead of alcohol, he turned to food. Mm. Um, he had basically a food addiction and it was somewhat problematic in, in his earlier days, but I think he could pretty much keep it under control. He would occasionally show up for a film a little larger than he was supposed to. Or I, I think I heard on mutiny on the bounty, he went through 53 pairs of pants because right. of he kept splitting the, the back of them. And right. It's funny. Cause if you watch the movie, he's actually not that big, no. but to the time he was huge. Right. And, he was in charge of this, or he was being very difficult as a. This is when his difficulties as an actor really started to blossom. Yeah, and he was so insecure about his weight that he wouldn't come out of his trailer. I don't know if it was this movie or it was another one, but or he would demand certain angles be only shot of him because he was so insecure about his weight. So he wasn't like a happy. A plump dude. Every pound made him feel extremely ashamed mm-hmm. of himself. Yeah, and yeah, I agree that he likely channeled. You know, when you grow up with alcoholism, you associate alcohol with just terribleness. You just look at alcohol and you're just like, alcohol is a terrible, terrible thing for weak people. So you avoid that, but you have the internalized and maybe even the biological disposition towards addiction. And so you'll you're you're more vulnerable to other kinds of addictions like work or food or you know some other substance. And that seemingly was his vice was yeah. food. And it's common when you have a frequent, you know, imagine on a daily basis you know, everyone out there, if you're not borderline, because I know we have some borderline, uh, cl- uh, not clients, but listeners, <laughs> imagine the one of the days in which you felt the worst about yourself because you were rejected. You know, you got fired, you got dumped, you got divorced, someone said you look terrible, uh, you're in a date and someone says, eh, I don't think things are really working out, you're not really my type. Just that sinking feeling of shame and rejection or betrayal or the day someone said that they cheated on you or the day you found out someone cheated on you. I mean, these, these just, you know, it's a terrible, ugly, shameful, horrible feeling. People that have borderline personality feel this way every day. Every day you feel that way. Well, if you're in that state every day, it's going to be hard to stay on a diet. Because I'll tell you, for, for my life, for me to stay on my diet, everything's got to be going perfect in my life. I mean, I have to be fully rested. My, I got to be like top self-esteem. I've got to get energy. People got to be treating me right. Uh, my internet connection's got to be pretty good. <laughs> you know, 
anything that gets out of whack, and I, I, I'm going to be like, ah, it's a cheat day, you know, because yeah. it, it just, it's a little treat I can give myself to make myself feel good. Yep. And Marlon Brando rarely felt good and turned to food in all likelihood as a way to just give him a little bit of happiness. Mm-hmm. And when you add that up over decades and decades, you just see a slow progression of gaining weight. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's sad because I think that's, you're exactly right. And I think I read or saw somewhere, uh, this employee of his, probably kind of like an assistant at his house said that at, this is near the, you know, the end when he was really, really pretty big. He would actually make this this employee of his padlock his refrigerator mm. shut and did not have a key to it. But he said he would come over the next morning and it would still be locked. But then there'd be a bunch of empty ice cream containers and Big Mac wrappers because he would have like paid someone to go get it or he would have had someone at the McDonald's deliver them to his house. It was like a common thing. And so even when he was trying to stop himself he couldn't stop himself and that's right. what i think is heartbreaking yeah that's true addiction yeah it's one thing to sneak a little bit of like one cookie it's another thing to go to the lengths of having someone padlock your fridge and then you call jimmy down at mcdonald's and say could you drive over mm-hmm. a bunch of food for me you know that's rock bottom right there yeah. in terms of you know and so and I always thought he was proud of his gaining weight, you know, like before I looked into it. But the more I looked into it, it was like clear that even when he was just slightly You're not kidding. I Yes, there's this one brief little interview he's doing with this really attractive lady. And he's you can tell he's a little bit smitten with her because he's just really staring at her face. She's quite beautiful. Is this when he's eating a steak at a restaurant? I don't think he's eating at the moment, but they... They, they believe they had a luncheon, and yeah. so it might be the same one. Yeah. But she is um, – I forget exactly what she says to him, but he gets a little bit flustered, and he's grinning, and then he – oh, because she gives – she pays him a very a wonderful compliment, and it's kind of over the top, so he's getting a little embarrassed. And then he kind of chuckles to himself, and he says, have you seen me nude? And everyone starts laughing, and he says, I'm getting so fat. And, like, at that point – he was not fat in the slightest. Yeah. So he was clearly concerned about it, even when it was, you know, a very minor thing. Standards are different back then. And That's he also true. might have just had a particularly sensitive time to that. I mean, I'm a huge Beatles fan, as the listeners know. And John Lennon, in the beginning of the Beatles career, was known as the fat one. What? Yeah. I've never heard that before. Oh, totally. John Lennon was known as the fat Beatle. I've never but if you heard look that. at. Beatles 1963, 1964, it's like he is not fat. He's just not rail thin like the other guys. It's kind of like the Three Stooges where Curly was the fat one. And you look at him now, you're like, he's like 30 pounds overweight. (laughs) Like it's not, he's like average by today's standards. Yeah. Oh boy. So another thing about gaining weight that I just want to throw in there that some people might be, you know, thinking about, which is when you're sexually abused, and one could look at his history, and again, we, I can't talk to him, I don't know. There could be signs of what we might frame as sexual abuse in terms of sensuality between him and his nanny. We don't know. You know I don't want to uh, shame you know, affection physical between children and, and their caregivers. But 
It might have been akin to sexual abuse. Maybe he saw his father sexually abusing his mom. I mean, who knows? But one of the ways that people will manifest that trauma is through eating disorders or eating problems mm. and and weight gain. Uh, not only as a as a way of trying to fill that void and try to cope with the the trauma reaction, but also as a way of trying to push people away from you. The bigger you get, the farther people move away from you physically. Mm. You know, and it and people them. know that it's a problem in our society that that we shun people that have extra fat cells. But it it's a way of getting people to get away from you. Don't touch me. Don't look at me. I'm now overweight. This is not a common syndrome, but I just wanted to throw it out there as a possibility. Yeah. So just some other details that I wrote down in my notes here. In his later years, he became kind of lazy as an actor. <laughs> he, would requ- he, he refused to learn the script, and he, wanted, he wrote his lines in places that you couldn't see. So on the film, so he would write, he would have people hold up cue cards or he would write the lines like on the set so he could. And there's this scene in The Godfather when he's talking to Al Pacino and he's giving Al Pacino advice about keep your, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. It's all that, that whole scene. And you see Al Pacino or you see Marlon Brando looking off screen whenever he talks. And that be- that's because he's reading a freaking cue card. I know. It's crazy. And he still is amazing. I know. As that's, an actor. That's what blew my mind was I knew he started doing that in his later years because he just, he did care about the Godfather, but most of the films he didn't care about. He was just doing it for the money. Yeah. But when I saw that, because I didn't know it when I first saw The Godfather that he was reading the lines. Yeah. And and that blew my mind because I thought it was such an amazing acting performance. Yeah. Which it was, but yeah. to know he's just he's just reading the lines. Right. He's still acting, but it's like, man, oh man, imagine if he had really spent a lot of time with this or, you know, really dove into this character in the same ways he did, you know, in the early days of his acting. Right. Um but he was still phenomenal. It was still yeah. just <laughs> Yeah, it's just amazing to think about a guy who could who could pull that off, you know? So, as you were mentioning, he started really demanding bigger paychecks, and it's hypothesized or maybe even known that that's because he'd been married and divorced three times and had... Ten kids. Had, well, so <laughs> I found all these different um, accounts of how many kids he had. Oh, boy. And, like, uh, one... So these are all quotes. At least nine children... Another quote, at least 11 children. Another quote, I read, 16 known children. Another quote, 17 or more children. <laughs> Boy. It, uh, one, of his ch- ch- one of his possible kids might be Courtney Love's mom. What? Did you know that? So no. Courtney Love might be Marlon Brando's granddaughter. So yeah, he had to pay a lot of money, apparently, for alimony and child support. And so he started demanding these big paychecks. He was supposed to be in Godfather 2 in these sort of flash forwards, but because he was demanding like millions and millions of dollars, the studio refused to, to pay him. He famously in Superman 1978, Christopher Reeve, the star, Superman, was only paid $250,000, which is a lot, but Marlon Brando got paid almost $4 million. Wow. And Brando is a small part in that movie. He's, he's in the first 10 minutes, and then he you know, kind of chimes in now then kind of like obi-wan you know 
Um, and Brando successfully sued the makers of Superman for $50 million because he felt cheated out of his share of the box office profits. So he became very concerned about earning a lot of money in his later years when in the beginning of his career he didn't seem to really care about that. Also, we should mention Apocalypse Now. Uh, what do you know about I, – I, I'm thoroughly confused about <laughs> what was going on. I mean, I'll tell you what I do know. Uh, he was in the – you know, this is around the same time as Superman. He was difficult. He refused to learn the script. He argued about the ending. He gained a lot of weight. Coppola had to shoot a body double, you know, from far away shots because apparently Marlon Brando was too big to be believable as a colonel in the army and or Marines or whatever. And um, but this movie and his role is so shrouded in insanity. I, you know, on one level, I'm like, was everyone insane and was he insane or is it just apocryphal or what do you know about Apocalypse Now? I so I I have never seen the film. I have seen half of it. Um, I I really need to watch the whole thing. That's the kind of odd thing about me. I'm realizing as I'm talking to you is for as much as I appear to know certain things about Marlon Brando, I've really only seen maybe three or four of his films, and I don't know if that's because. Like we've talked about, I'm more interested in who he is as a, as a person versus as an actor. And maybe because he had such a disdain for acting, it's almost like to just pay attention to his films is, you know, doing the opposite of what he would have wanted. But um, well, not, for that the record, not that I'm consciously thinking. Apocalypse that. Now is not a great movie. I mean, some people love it. Yeah. But and there's some great scenes for yeah, sure. Yeah. But it, it it's a it, it suffers from its production problems, especially the ending. I think at the time it was just like mind blowing, right? sure, because it was like, whoa, what's happening? And like, it's anti war, and it's like dark, and this new look at Vietnam and American colonialism and stuff. But it doesn't really hold up, so you're not missing much. Is the point? <laughs> I still will probably watch it just to because I have heard, you know, like some of the stories that you had just described there, and and knowing that. It's funny because Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola, had a he actually fought for Marlon Brando to be in The Godfather. The studios did not want him because of the reputation he had built up oh, really? for causing so many issues and you know pushing films over budget and behind. And um, it was like an immediate no way. And so it's kind of a, a long story. But eventually he he had Marlon Brando do a screen test at his house, and when Coppola showed the uh, execs or whomever it was. The screen test, they didn't even know it was Marlon Brando because he had stuffed his cheeks with Kleenex and he'd put shoe polish in his hair and he changed, you know, his physicality. And so, um, obviously, they eventually ended up um, hiring him, but he didn't really hardly get paid anything for that film. That was part of the agreement. Um, And they worked really well together. And so working together again on Apocalypse Now, I think Coppola, it appears, has mixed feelings, but I think he still has a positive overall uh, take on Brando, at least from what I've heard and, and witnessed, but that that's not everything. So um, it seems as though it had to do with Marlon hadn't read the book and he hadn't read the script when he showed up. And so they spent about a week just talking a week of was supposed to be film time talking. Yeah. So crew, everyone is there. It's the money meter is already running. And my take on it is in the end, I believe that because of, the decisions that 
Marlon Brando felt were important to the film, and as well as Francis Ford Coppola, it kind of ended up being somewhere in the middle of where it was supposed to be and i think where marlon wanted it to be and part of that was because like you said they couldn't shoot him because he gained so much weight and i think that francis ford coppola said that he would just kind of feed marlon these little seeds of an idea about a scene and then just film him and he would just improvise for 20 30 minutes or so and and that was kind of a big part of where you know his role in the film was not necessarily always scripted um but it seems to have gotten i I feel like most people i know regard that as a a, like the great films but yeah yeah totally i am not a huge fan (laughs) maybe if i grew up in that time and saw it or something that's what's hard is i think we have such a different sense now films and not only the content, but the way that they're made are so, so different and so much more fast paced now yeah. that when you go back and you watch an old movie, um, sometimes you're thinking, why, why did everyone say this was such a, a great movie? It right. seems very slow. It seems right. very schlocky or, you know, but right. that's just where. They- well, even The Godfather, uh, when I saw it growing up, I loved it. And so I still love it. But. I younger people will say, I saw The Godfather, I couldn't get through, I fell asleep. And right. I was like, how dare you fall yeah. asleep during The Godfather? I mean, that's, that's, that's terrible, it's sacrilegious. But then I was like, huh, compared to the, today's movies, it is probably, you know, a little slow. And <laughs> Yeah. But, yeah, okay. So, anyway, there's a lot of weird stories about Apocalypse Now. They made an entire documentary, Heart of Darkness, I think it's called. Here's my little analysis of this time in his life. And it's hard for me to know, obviously, but I think what happened was, just as as, an, as a guess, was he was he was well known for being difficult on the set. He was well known for being one of the best actors of all time. He was well known for his womanizing and his maybe his manizing and his antics. And it was at a time, you know, we're talking sixties, seventies when improv was big and like being real was big and like experience and humanistic psychology and primal screaming and anti-establishment, you know, there's a lot of chaos and he's supposed to be like the best, most interesting, most dynamic, you know, and then he's asked to be in this, uh, the second France, you know, Coppola movie where Godfather was like the sensation. I mean, we still talk about it today and it came out in 1972 and there's just all this pressure on him to like be something transcendent in this in the in this second movie with Coppola, and it's about Vietnam, and it's this you know this uh, it's supposed to be this delving into psychology, and it's not just supposed to be a movie about you know uh, the, the story. It's supposed to be like a, a delving into human the human darkness of our minds, you know. And he's supposed to, and the whole movie is about finding Colonel Kurtz. Right. And then once you find him, finally up the river, it's supposed to be this fantastic, you know, it just was too much pressure. And I think he kind of overthought it, I think. And I think he got too wrapped up in, like, I want to do this. I want to get paid. (laughs) I want to be, I want to, you know, give a good performance. But this script is kind of bad. There's a lot of pressure. You know, someone needed to step in and say, Marlon, 
here's the script. <laughs> I need you to act this part because it fits within the larger story of this movie. Now, again, maybe some people will say, no, Barlin's, you know, his performance was perfect and everything went correct the way that it did. But to me, it, it wasn't that way. Of course, we get the classic improv line, the whore, the whore, you know. Yeah. But I particularly didn't like his scenes in Apocalypse Now. Well, now that makes me really want to watch it. Yeah. Oh, dude, you have to. Yeah, he's. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the documentary. Okay. So let's kind of race through the ending here. Late career in his you know late 50s until he died at the age of 80. So 1980s, 1990s. Um, several terrible movies, including the infamous The Island of Dr. Moreau, but some good ones. A Dry White Season, which I think is about apartheid. Uh, the Freshman with Matthew Broderick. You probably haven't, you haven't, I haven't seen, that. seen that, but I want to. He plays uh, Vito Corleone. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, it's, it's like a satire. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Score, which I really like with, with uh, Edward Norton and Al, uh, Robert De Niro which is final movie in 2001. I really like that movie. That's a great, just standard heist movie. Um, Edward Norton is at his most yeah. Edward Norton-y. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, during this time in his late career, he had three nominations and one win for the Golden Raspberry Award. He had one Oscar nomination, uh, I think for the uh, Dry White season. Still difficult to work with. Uh, the score was, was directed by Frank Oz from... Oh. from uh, Muppets and famously Marlon Brando uh, was very terrible to Frank Oz and called him Miss Piggy huh. which is you know not nice to say <laughs> and like refused to take direction from him and whenever and toward the end of when he was acting the movie refused to have Frank Oz even in the room and so he would make uh, Robert De Niro give him direction interesting <laughs> like imagine you're trying to direct a movie and one of the stars is saying, you can't be on the set, yeah, even though you're the good. director. Yeah. That's not good. Uh, his fourth partner during this time, uh, Maria Cristina Ruiz, who was his housekeeper. Uh, but he had three children with her. Um, so there's that. Okay. So I really want to get into something at the end of the episode here that I just think is just a fascinating story. It's 1990. Um, his daughter, Cheyenne. What do you know about this story? What I know is his daughter, Cheyenne, who was, I believe, his second child with his third wife, the, Tahitian. the one he met in Tahiti. Yeah. Cheyenne, she was beautiful. Yeah. To me, she's the child that I've seen pictures of that looks the most like Marlon Brando. She's yeah. just this gorgeous girl. Well, everyone knows that half Asians, which she was, are the most beautiful people. Oh, is that planet. what they say? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I say. Um, she kind of, it sounds like she had a troubled bit of a troubled life. I think she suffered with some depression and a little bit of just some kind of difficulties. Right. Just to chime in on that, in general, Marlon Brando, although intellectually loved his children, was not there for his kids growing up. And he felt very shameful of that and very bad about that, but at the same time did it. You know, he fathered many children that mm -hmm. he wasn't there for, very similar to the way he was treated by his parents. Sure. Which is what we all do. We tend to recreate the problems that we mm -hmm. had when we were growing up. So, okay. So, so she is, she's kind of a troubled child, and he um, he actually did spend, I, th I believe he spent the most time with the two children, because well, they were together for 10 years, right. and um, 
She right. was so if you would have pointed to Marlon to say who is you know really who are your real kids it would be <laughs> <laughs> which ones really count <laughs> it would be Cheyenne and Cheyenne's brother probably he was really close with her and I think he tried to um, get her help and and save her from herself in a way but she eventually did end up well there was one instance that happened but prior to that which her boyfriend um, they got pregnant I believe she was in her early twenties. And uh, Marlon just wanted to see what kind of guy this person was. So he sent her older half-brother, Christian, to just kind of, you know, give him the old once-over and check him out, see if it was a guy that they wanted her to be with. Right. So I want to I w- I dig on down to this because I think this is a critical part in the story. Yeah. Because that's the way it's described. It's like, give him the old once-over or whatever it is. <laughs> but to me, it's like, if I'm, a, if I'm a dad and I'm a little upset that my angel has been impregnated by this random dude that I don't have a relationship with. I'm going to be like, who the hell is this guy? How dare he? It, to me, I think there's more to that story. I there mean, probably, what do you think? There probably is. And I, I actually want to say, I think that the family knew this. I, I believe his name was Dev. I want to say his name was Dev. Dag. His name was Dag. Dag the guy Dag, who... Dag. Drolet. Right. That's so, a Haitian guy. I want to say that he was friends with Cheyenne's brother or somehow maybe Christian knew him. Somebody knew him. He had been around and I think Marlon was just wanting to get a take a read on what kind of a guy he was. Mm. That was my understanding, but I could certainly be wrong. But Christian, who is desperate for his father's yes, approval yeah. because everyone was, particularly his kids, particularly because he didn't give them enough attention growing up. Christian's like, okay, I'm going to do right by my dad. But he brings a gun. Yeah. So that's the part where I'm like, if Marlon was just like, you know, hey, just go question him, see if he's on the up and up. And then Christian's like, okay, I'm going to bring a gun. Either Christian's an idiot or Marlon was like, look, I need you to really confront this guy and scare him and like really make sure he's on the up and up. Or... I want you to go to this kid and tell him he, he's got to get out of my daughter's life. Because that's the part where I'm thinking maybe that's what happened. And again, I have no evidence of this. Yeah, it's hard to say. But but anyway, so Christian... At any rate, apparently there was some kind of a... I think it's reported as they kind of got into a little bit of a wrestling match and the gun went off accidentally and shot Dag and, and he died. So Christian actually got um, sentenced. I believe it was like 10 years in prison for that. Right. Just like you said, Christian shoots Dag, shoots him in the face, by the way. Ooh. And as you say, the account is there's a wrestling match, but we just really don't know. Marlon was there and tried to give CPR to Dag. I don't know if it's pronounced Dag, but it's spelled like Dag. Um, didn't work, obviously. Marlon then calls the police, and there's a famous trial in the early before OJ. Big trial. Robert Shapiro was Christian's lawyer. <laughs> oh, just like OJ's yeah. lawyer. Have you seen the video of Marlon giving um, testimony? I have. Because some people said that he was acting when he was up there. Is that kind of what you're wondering? Or just... Yeah. And, yeah. and just what he was saying. Oh. Know? Yeah, he... I mean, I think he broke down when he was up there. And he he sort of blamed himself in a way because he, he said Christian had a pretty pretty bad upbringing you know just between the marriage falling apart the mom drinking a lot him not being around he was kidnapped at one point like 
There was a lot of issues with their custody battles with him. I think he had kind of a tough life. Christian was kidnapped? I believe he was kidnapped by the mother and held somewhere to, to, to get some ransom money or to somehow get some kind of something that she wanted in the custody battle. Oh, no. But it was not to be traced back to her, but it was. Oh. Um, so I think the kid, you know... He had not the greatest upbringing, and I think Marlon felt bad about that. So he was not to say that it would justify, you know, him shooting someone, but that perhaps his lack of being there for him or being a good father or providing more guidance or whatever, he might not have brought a gun to this, you know, meeting with this guy, or he may not have acted in the same way. The whole thing wouldn't have happened if Marlon had said, Christian, go to, you know, Right. Question this kid. So, and how traumatic that must have been for everybody. So yeah, he 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 broke down on the stand, and <clears throat> it was moving. But um, yeah, I think you know some of the reporters were like, "Oh, he was just acting to try to get his son right off," you know. But which, again, if you know nothing about Marlon Brando's life, it's like, yeah, maybe he, you know, because he, he's a scumbag, he's difficult to work with, and he's some kind of psychopath who hates Jewish people, <laughs> then, you know. But, again, knowing the full breadth of his life, I I think it was absolutely genuine. Yeah, and I especially mean, in his, his later years, he really made a point to spend a lot of time with his kids in the yeah. last, you know, 10 or so years of his life yeah. and to kind of make up for some of that right. lost time. And presumably, he was asking Christian to go to Cheyenne's boyfriend to question him because he loved Cheyenne so much and yeah. was trying to protect her. And maybe he was even trying to, like, bond his, you know, Christian with yeah. the family and, you know, just trying to it's be a family, you know, and it all... Well, and that's not even the, the worst of it. Right. Then what happened? <laughs> Did I cut you off where you wanted to no. say something? Go for it. But you were right. So Christian is convicted 10 years in prison, which is awful for... For Marlon Brando. And then what happens? And then a very short time later, Cheyenne ends up committing suicide. And so it was kind of a double blow for him in terms of essentially losing two children. Right. So Cheyenne, having witnessed her boyfriend, the father of her children, maybe the love of her life, get killed by her half-brother at the sort of orders of her own father... And she's depressed. She she has a young child. So she's, you know, depressed and she hangs herself in Tahiti. And now Brando's like just I mean, just the tragedies that mm-hmm. are happening to him in his life. It's just terrible. Yeah. And then a decade later he he died. That's quite of a bummer of a ending there for us. Um <laughs> That's the end of my notes, of which there were, you know, 15 pages, which I'm sure um, everyone could tell it was long. <laughs> but what's the final word on Marlon Brando? And remember, you're an expert, Carrie Burbank. Right. I Yeah, I have a laminated printout that I made myself in clip art saying I'm the number one Marlon Brando expert in Whatcom County. Um, right. I feel like it's hard to sum his his life up and, and, and the person that he was up succinctly because there's just so, so many things that happened to him. So many things he did, so many contradictory elements of his personality. And that's why I think I'm so fascinated with the guy because it's just, 
it seems like you could keep learning more and more and more about him and, and keep finding more and more layers and more interesting and you know stories and because that's the other thing too i feel like we did kind of go down a dark path for some of that but he was also known as someone that was a big laugher practical joker loved to you know goof around and have fun and you know especially on sets like prank people and and if he could get a laugh out of somebody i think that was like his favorite moment you know especially he talked about making his mom laugh he used to do some crazy things like he used to have a raccoon in his apartment in new york when he was like 20 years old as a pet and one time it got out and crawled across the ledge into the neighbor's bathroom and i I think he like crawled across the ledge after it or he he talks about hanging from like 11 stories to just amuse people at a party he's like i would never do that now it's crazy these things i did as a kid but um he just had such a wild and interesting and rich life but at the same time i'm intrigued by just the way his mind worked and the way he thought about things and explored and never stopped never stopped being curious like all the way up to the end he would he was famous for calling certain people that he just maybe saw uh, in a film or in an interview and found interesting for some reason call him at three o'clock in the morning and talk to them for three hours on the phone and a lot of times the first reaction was like this isn't Marlon Brando. Right, yeah, right. right. But then you call back. Um, yeah, just, I think he was sort of like Prince in that way. You know, like everyone yeah. has like a Prince story. Right. Yes. Yeah, I think he was sort of like that. I mean, he's obviously an eccentric guy. Some of his friends who knew him from way back in the day when he would often just do these, whether it was kind of these crazy stunts or maybe they would be at a party and he would say or do something that's completely socially inappropriate but would crack everybody up um, or make someone feel very uncomfortable. They would wonder if he was doing these things just to play some sort of joke on everyone or if he was just genuinely like that like he just genuinely couldn't help himself from doing those things Mm. and it wasn't with any sort of um pretense or with the uh objective of getting a rise it was just this is how his brain worked and this is what he wanted to do so this is what he was going to do and most of them came to the conclusion that no that was that was just the way he was wired like he just did Whatever he did or said whatever he said almost to kind of amuse himself or because that felt like the thing to do in that moment. And the last thing that I will say about him that I really admire is when we've seen him in some of these interviews where he's not willing to really go there in terms of talking about a film he's made and talk about it for the 1900th time, the way that he could sit there after being asked a question and just either say that's not really something i want to talk about and then it just hangs there and there's awkward silence and you can see the host not knowing what to do and i know for myself and perhaps this is true of most people like you would feel the need to say something or you would you would try to make it you you sort of know what your role is there you've come onto the show to promote this thing or to talk about this thing and the comfort in your own skin that it must take to sit there and be on national television and be, you know, and interviewed by some of the most famous people and to not to not succumb to the pressure of what you know they want you to say and to talk about what you know they want you to talk about, but instead just stick true to yourself and what feels okay to you. Like that takes some balls. I don't like I that's another thing. I don't think I've ever seen anyone in my real life exhibit that kind of absolute what to me reads as comfort in your own skin that you don't feel the need to Mm. validate this person you don't need to you don't feel the need to make this moment less awkward or you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. 
Does that make sense? Do you ever think WWMD <laughs> when you're living your life? You know what's really funny is like right before I got here, um, my husband texted me and said, you know, have fun, you know, doing this podcast. And if you get nervous, just remember WWMD. <laughs> I'm not joking. I can show you the text. <laughs> I said, I responded with, well, he would probably want to talk about Native American causes, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what Marlon would do. Yeah. He would derail and advocate. Yes. But I do wish, I do long for some point in my life to be able to harness a little bit of whatever that is, you know, to just be kind of unflappable in in yourself as a person and not feel the need to succumb to what other people expect of you or want from you, but you're not comfortable giving. Yeah. I respect that. I like that. I It makes me wonder, what does it say about me in terms of the people that I love in my life? I mean, I'm, I have a new love for Marlon Brando, but it's new. <laughs> But it's like, I love Paul McCartney and John Lennon. So it's like, why, you know, what is it about me? You know, what, what, what personality trait am I trying to absorb from them? It's interesting to think about. Do you think that's what it is? Do you think it's, yeah, that's what it is for you. That's what it feels like. Yeah. I think that I talk about this with my students, you know, the age group of people who idolize famous people the most are teenagers, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And the reason why that is is because teens are the most insecure people on the planet. Mm. And they're desperately looking for someone to aspire to, to give them the internal sense or hope or something of having self-esteem and having a direction and having people accept you and, you know, appreciate you. And so, and as we get older, we get less, we get less of a sense of idolizing, Mm. you know, those sorts of people. And... Uh, but we never give it up, right? Yeah. And it makes total sense. You know, I think Marlon Brando's, the way that you're seeing him is absolutely someone we could all look up to as someone that was authentic, mm-hmm. who was real, who said what he wanted to say and sometimes made mistakes and didn't do what everyone wanted him to do <laughs> and rejected, like he was supposed to be he was supposed to play Genghis Khan in that movie that John Wayne played. And I'm so glad that John Wayne was the one who played Genghis Khan with this, you know, the eye makeup to make him look Asian. He didn't take that role because he wanted to take a social conscious role. I think burn was the movie and he wanted to make movies that, that had a political statement, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like we could all, follow in his footsteps, which is not what I thought I was going to come to <laughs> when I, I thought I was going to find insanity. He's just a big jerk. In, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Big racist, insane dude uh, who gained weight. You know, I thought that's what I was going to find, but I think there's a lot to admire about him. And I, I agree with you. And I've asked myself at times, like, why do you, you know, I, I don't think I have an obsession with Marlon Brando. And I, like I said, I haven't even seen probably one quarter of his films. Um, but, it's him as a person that, like, I'm reading, you know, this book. I'm watching the documentary, listen to me, Marlon. Anything I can find online, I'm watching, and it's, I can watch them. I seriously watch, listen to me, Marlon, at least, like, once a month. Usually when my husband's out of town. Um. <laughs> Jacuzzi, yeah. the candlelight, a little <laughs> exactly. champagne. Exactly. Um, but I think this is going to seem a little bit disconnected, but I will bring it back around. So I've done a little bit of acting in my life, kind of starting as a little kid, just taking my parents' VHS cameras and 
and making home movies and talk shows and skits and things just for the fun of it. And in some of my adult life, I've dabbled a little bit here and there and had an agent at one time. And don't worry, I haven't done anything important. But I really enjoyed the process of taking classes and learning about acting and going through a lot of these exercises. But I never really liked the whole going on auditions and, oh, am I going to book that Tulalip Casino commercial? Like, you know, I always just felt like embarrassed about that stuff and and didn't really want to get the parts in those types of things. Mm. So I eventually just sort of quit that. But I, I continued with this one acting workshop that I do probably every three months. Because really, it's it kind of reminds me a little bit of when Marlon Brando talks about being at the new, the new school for social research where he met Stella. To me, it's like we explore in that workshop what it is to be human. And so you're really opening up and your exercises that we do, it's, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced before. And I feel like it makes me a more full human being and a more sometimes getting rid of certain fears or getting them out of the way and building confidence in certain directions, but, but exploring like playing characters that are completely different than me and going through emotions I've never personally experience, but mm. you find them because you're tapping into your own humanity that we all share. And the point is, I think that I don't really enjoy the acting acting part for the sake of getting a role or achieving some sort of status with it. I just enjoy the process of learning what it is to be human and mm. exploring those emotions and applying them to different circumstances. But I think the other thing why I'm probably more interested in Marlon Brando than your average person is just his curiosity about why people do what they do and what motivates our behavior and 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 trying to endlessly understand yourself and what your purpose is and i don't know about you i'm sure you do this as being the career that you're in but i'm always analyzing other people and wondering what motivates them and you know talking over dinner with my husband about you know someone we know or someone we observed that day and like trying to understand you know what what created what caused them to be this type of person or to have this type of a reaction or mm-hmm. those things are really fascinating to me and i think that's potentially why i am so such a big fan of marlon brando because not to say i have <laughs> in any in any way shape or form that i'm on the same level as him in, in that thinking but i think there's a that's shared endless curiosity and fascination with people mm. and and why they do what they do and why listening to him and some of his theories on things and his perspective and how that's changed over time is really just up my alley. It's so interesting because I'm not an actor. As I said, in my short acting career in high school, I was terrible. Your musical theater. Yeah. I'm a singer, (laughs) but I'm a terrible actor. I'm not that great of a singer, but I'm a much better singer than I am an actor. What's your jam? What do you mean? Like what song? Or I mean, I'm a songwriter. Like if you're in the car going somewhere by yourself and you're feeling the need to, well, I love the Beatles, and I love the Strokes, and I love the Knack. I love a lot of bands with the in the beginning. Yeah. Um, it was a safe bet to go with yeah. a band with the in the beginning. Uh, the Cardigans, Elvis Costello. The Cardigans. Have they seen that Love Fool song? That's the worst of all their songs. <laughs> I'm here I think to it's tell the you. only song on theirs I know. Their first three albums are pop gold. It's so that's the production and the melodies and the, every song's different and they're one of my favorite bands. Do you remember the first Beatles song you ever heard? No, uh, but I pretty much only knew of their early stuff. You know, I didn't know about their psychedelic, yeah, weird stuff. And once I got older and started 
getting into that, I started really getting into that and liked it more. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, as you describe, you know, the identification you have with Marlon Brando in terms of y- your process of the the craft or experience of acting. It reminds me of what we call improv or drama therapy. Oh. And it's just what you're talking about. It's essentially taking acting classes, but with no aspiration of actually acting. And as a family therapist, we incorporate some of these kinds of interventions where people will do different exercises of emotion and experience and role play and interactions and spontaneity and, you know, yes anding and stuff. And and how, when you really get into it, how it just unleashes certain things about you and you learn things and you and you feel it and it's real you feel yourself like expanding and yeah yeah, it's 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 one of those things that if i would have heard somebody talk about this 10 years ago i'd probably be like yeah that's not for me but having done it and actually experienced it and felt how much it kind of re-energizes me and re-motivates me and takes me to a different level whether it's in my thinking or in my willingness to walk through some fear and do it anyway, or, you know, all those kinds of things would sound a little bit amorphous, but I think they're all connected in that it's not to summarize that. Do you have any words of wisdom? Well, <laughs> I, I, I could see how Marlon Brando is like the epitome of what you're talking about and how many actors might look up to him in that way. Cause he was so raw and so good and so real and so willing to take a fall. And so And I think willing to be seen. That's yeah. that's the thing. It's like we're all walking around kind of with some amount of protection all the time. Yeah. And maybe we lower it a little bit around certain people, but to truly be seen, like yeah. be nakedly seen is like a very scary thing. And right. then to be, you know, up on a screen or in some sort of arena where people their job is to judge you, to be like, Was that good or was that bad? Did I like it or did I not? And then put it in the newspaper and that's like a hundred times more terrifying than just do- the doing of it. You know, it's like right. now you're going to be judged for it too. And with art and anything in the creative realm, it's like, it's one thing to have the guts to make it, but then there's the whole possibility that, you know, people may hate it and they may say terrible things about you and they may love it, but right. you know, it's, it's a scary career path to, to choose or to, yeah. you know, I, the little I know about it, I know enough to know that it's, an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. All the auditions and the hey, rejection. I got this gig. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, half the people hated it, you know? And just, and how Marlon Brando seemed to be above all that, you know? He just seemed to be like, F you. Um, well, again, and- in the same way that Kurt Cobain is so beloved by uh, young in, guitarists and singers because it's way, just like yeah. he, you know, Kurt Cobain just gave a big <clears throat> finger to the entire thing, you know? And there's, there's something useful <laughs> to the soul to try to bring that into your life, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. And I think the one thing that people don't necessarily always consider as it relates to actors, Brando spoke about, I think in an interview, somebody said, you know, do you ever miss the theater? Would you ever want to go back to theater acting? And he was like, no, no way. He was like, you have to for the three nights every night and sometimes twice on Sunday. Like you have to if you're playing that kind of a role like a Stanley Kowalski, you have to take yourself to this awful place of just emotionally 
destroying yourself and the energy that it takes and the, you know, how exhausting that is. It's not fun to go to that place, you know, every day for however long a show is running. And that's a thing I don't think I've thought about a ton when I'm watching. I guess it would be mostly stage actors because you just assume, well, this is their job. They know how to do it. Right. They've been trained. But and it's not that hard. They just get up there and act. Right. Deal. Yeah. And it's. But it, it is a big deal because the emotional. The emotions are real. Yeah. You're putting yourself in a place where you are you're experiencing that you know if you're if you're good i guess you're you are you're actually having that physical sensation in your body you know and what can i say yeah marlin's very much a one of a kind that's for sure totally yeah i can't think of anyone who after learning about him is come comes close to his humongousness of career and personality and stories and fascination and magnetism i mean i just just after doing a deep dive on him i can't think of anyone else that comes close to him really yeah and learning about him has been interesting psychologically it's been interesting in terms of film but it's also been interesting in terms of history of america in some ways because he is intertwined in all that um and so yeah i've just uh, this has been a you know really fascinating thing to do. And Carrie, thanks for coming on the podcast to talk about this. It's it's been almost three hours. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. Holy shit! Which is awesome, uh, I think, for uh, the listeners because they like these deep dive episodes. And um, you've just been a really awesome expert from uh, Whatcom County uh, on Marlon Brando. Well, thank you for having me. This has been really fun to talk about a person that I really am into so thank you for having me and um here's to hopefully a not too arduous of an editing process that you have ahead of you to get this down to something (laughs) there's only a couple (laughs) there's only a couple moments where i said something stupid nothing that you said that's all that's all stan especially all that fart joke stuff yeah that's 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 some of my best material so that'll that whole you know gross bit will stay in yeah good Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself and go out there and learn more about Marlon. Watch YouTube. There's a ton of interviews, just super interesting uh, historical personality bits on YouTube. Watch all that. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it.